Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. Uh, this is the 18th episode of the show, and probably, well, I don't want to jinx it, but probably, you never know, our, you never know but probably yeah. our last uh, episode of this uh, of this show. Um, so uh, we're going to be discussing The Legend of Korra, but not any particular episode in this uh, last episode, or possibly last episode, uh, we're going to talk about the entire uh, series, uh, perhaps with some allusions to The Last Airbender, but predominantly we're going to be talking about The Legend of Korra. And um, specifically, uh, you know, I think it would be fun to go back and, and uh, really look at arcs uh, as they've uh, come and gone in the, in the season, uh, in, in each season, uh, look at the characters and how they've evolved themes, uh, maybe talk about some of our favorite moments, uh, so anyway, so without further ado, let's, let's get started. Uh, so I think one of the, something that'll just, you know, kickstart everything is to go back and look at each season and, uh, maybe talk about, uh, the episodes that stuck out to us or even, you know, moments or, or both, uh, from each mm-hmm. season. So we'll start with, with air. Uh, yep. yeah. Do you want to, want to go ahead? Um, I have a few just, what I want to start with is the, one episode that I think is kind of, um, and just just to just a preface before our entire conversation, I feel like whenever I make a grand sweeping statement, uh, beginnings is excluded from that, and Korra alone is excluded from that because those are so clearly kind of the the, the twin uh, uh, pinnacles of this of this entire series. Um, I don't think I, I can't see what, how anyone could dispute that those are the two best episodes. Korra alone um, and, and the beginning, yeah, and, and at the very least beginnings. Mm-hmm. But I think Korra alone as well. But um, I think one of the at least from with my personal experience with the show, episode six of season one and the winner is mm, yeah, that's what um, I had too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that was a big moment for me with this show because you know coming off of the last Airbender, which was so big when I was when I was younger, um, I was in, I had been enjoying Korra. Uh, it didn't really. But I hadn't been like loving it, mm. like loving, it. and it, it didn't bother me that I wasn't loving it. Um, it did. I wasn't like upset that it wasn't uh, the greatest thing, but that it was just good. But when we get to end, the winner is specifically um, the fight that happens at the end of the episode mm. when Amon attacks the the arena. Uh, I watched that and I thought, I, I, I I've probably talked about this on the show before. I watched that and I thought, this is. You know, this is a better fight scene than most movies I've seen this year. And it's, you know, animation, I think, maybe allows for a little more flexibility with stuff like choreography and just mm. kind of the general It's more controlled of, because exactly, has exactly. to be drawn. Or, and you, know. you can draw, there aren't limitations based on what, right. what can actually happen. So when, but just even when uh you're in that situation where you don't have those uh, physical limitations. You still need uh, a director with a, uh, imagination and passion and a, you know, a kind of visual knack. And the shot that I come back to is this one where Lynn is hanging from mm-hmm. like one of the one of the wires, and then she's hanging down another wire, and Cora's at the bottom, and they're kind of swinging around, but like uh, at an angle, so it's kind of like a it's kind of like a curve with with Lynn at, at one end, and then Cora is kind of curving down in the opposite direction as they're swinging around the stadium. That's just a beautiful kind of like ballet uh, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, you know, and surrounded by the smoke and then the and the rubble 
it's just an astonishing shot, and the whole fight scene on to, on the roof is uh, is also fantastic. Some great fight choreography. The the fight scene on the roof is great, and uh, I think that's the one where she's she, doesn't she chase after them and get into a fight with the lieutenant in that same episode. Yes, with uh, Amon's lieutenant. Yeah, that whole thing yeah. is great. Um, and what's funny is you mentioned the the fight scene, and in fact, uh, we get. Later, we get more backstory on the fact that there actually is metal. Ben- uh, the metal benders have this whole dance company thing, um, and so the the idea of, of dance and and combat being intertwined isn't actually foreign to the show at all. It's very overtly stated later on that Suyin is yeah, yeah. in this uh, dance company, and she's Lin's sister, and so that's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, that's um, something I that's something I had down for season three as well. That, oh, that really? Moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you're absolutely right. It's the Exactly that word. Exactly the aesthetics of the fights in this show are um, really, really fascinating in the way that they are born out of the just the reality of what it would mean to be uh, a bender of, of whatever particular element you're talking about, and also the reality of who these characters are. Mm-hmm. That's what always, and that's what always ultimately really fascinated me about. Uh, the fights on on both of these shows, but I think it's also really well done, particularly with Korra uh, on this show. And well, when we talk about character arcs, uh, notice in this series how Korra starts almost always using firebending. Mm-hmm. And when she ends the series, she almost always uses air. And I think that's the perfect kind of uh, physical visual metaphor for her uh, her emotional journey, her emotional maturation. And, you know, she starts off, you know, very hot-tempered, you know, haha, But, you know, very headstrong and just, uh, she does, like she does in the final episode, she doesn't think things through. And it's only after she kind of goes through all the things that we see her go through that she's able to find a little more peace and she's able to find kind of in airbending. Uh, she's able to connect with it on a level that doesn't kind of sacrifice who she still is as a person. Um but she's able to connect with it on a deeper level than just that kind of surface uh, passion and emotion. Well, what's funny is that it's sort of a, it's sort of like they took. Well, it's not sort of. It is what happened, but it's sort of like they took the um, first season's arc and extended it for the whole. Which is why I think a lot of people were. Fr- I mean, I was one of them. Were frustrated with her behavior in seasons two and then some of three, uh, because. It seemed like one was that whole arc because it was supposed to be a mini series. So by the time she's at the end of it, she's supposed to have evolved a little bit in terms of her hot headedness. Um, and we actually only really get that conclusion at the end of the last book, which you know, um, it's interesting. It's 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 interesting because it's like it's almost like they they took her to from like a zero to a six in terms of like reasonableness, and then at the end of season one and then it's season two, they like brought her back to like a four or a three and we're like, Oh wait, wait, she's not quite there yet. And then we got <laughs> three more seasons of her uh, growing. Now I would prefer a four season arc because I felt like season one was kind of rushed and especially in the character development side of things. So I prefer this, the latter, but it's just funny because the first book is all about how she's finally able to bend air, but there's nothing about her character that indicates that she's really changed by the time book two starts. That's true, and uh, like I said in those very early uh, episodes of this podcast, I never really had a problem with Korra's behavior, just because I enjoyed 
who she was, you know, as a person. And she wasn't, you know, she wasn't perfect, obviously. And uh, she, it's not a bad thing, uh, the changes that she went through. But I kind of, but I I admired, I admired her and I admired for, you know, as as stupid as the decision she made could be, um, I admired her for making them a lot of the time. And the show, I think, kind of wants you to. And in the beginning of season... We're jumping ahead a little, but in the beginning of season three, I like how everybody hates her, basically, right. for for the decision she's made. And that, I think, has a real effect on her. I think you can split this uh, series into these two halves that way. Mm. Um, where Korra, at the beginning of season three, she realizes... Uh, it, it first comes as this personal revelation that as the Avatar, she has to make these calls and people are not going to like them because of, you know, because, because people don't like change and obviously that's what book three is about. Right. Um, but she has to come to kind of accept that because of she, because of who she is, she has to make these calls and that's just the way it's going to be. She cannot, you know, agonize over, you know, what's the thing that's going to make everyone the happiest and she can't leave this responsibility behind because it's just too much to handle. Right. Uh, she has to take it on because that's just, you know, that's who she is. And eventually she does. Eventually she finds kind of the fortitude within herself to be able to do that. And by that point, she is a much calmer, much wiser person. And it is, she's going to make better decisions because of that. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that that's, it's a compelling arc. It's just, um, it's really just a question of, and it has to do with production and things that are really beyond the creator's control, but it's almost like if they had had four seasons, they wouldn't have had her necessarily, maybe maybe they wouldn't have even had her master airbending by the end of book one. Uh, or they would have, you know, they might have saved that for later. There's a lot of things they could have done, uh, I think, differently uh, if they had known that they were going to have four seasons worth of time. Um but I, I want to come back to uh, and the winner is, which is, it's an interesting episode for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is it's not it's not just that it was you know the for, the choreography was cool and everything. I mean, we already knew the animation was at that point was phenomenal. The one of my favorite scenes uh, where I I often go back to uh, for to to show people what the new series looks like is the scene where she's supposed to be airbending uh, the 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 old airbender. Or she's supposed to like navigate that thing that Tenzin has those panels like that spin. spinning, yeah. yeah. And then she breaks it all, and that whole that whole scene is really, really. Uh, you, you that scene compared to anything in the old series, it's it's a very stark contrast. And <laughs> not only is it cool in terms of you know the animation's great, but it also integrates two D and three D animation in a way that's far superior to the way the old show did. Uh, and it just it looks really fluid. It doesn't feel like two different. Um, animation styles uh, mixed into one, and I just I, I really like that scene. And and um, but but coming back to and the winner is so up to that point that we already had the nice animation, we already had a lot of stuff. We were introduced to pro bending, which at first we really enjoyed, but sort of got tiresome because it was both sports related, which you know it's like we're not watching the show to follow a sports team, uh, and the other part of it was it was intimately tied to this romantic tri- you know love triangle that we didn't care about uh so and by we i mean me and i i think you uh didn't care about this this plot and so uh, we had a couple of episodes you know it took until the sixth episode before we got any sort of progress on that front um 
And so things really ratcheted up by that point. And uh, in, in the winter is, uh, and what's funny about and the winter is, is the name of the episode suggests we're going to get yet more uh, pro bending, which is why I think a lot of people at that point were kind of uh, not all that enthusiastic about what what was going to happen next. And yet, uh, you know, we had there was a you know a massive drop off after this after this episode, which I find kind of interesting in in terms of viewership. Um, but I think for me, it, it, this is when I you know, redoubled my interest because I was like, all right, we're not just talking about pro-bending here. We're talking about a real threat uh, and not just a real threat, but a threat who is, um, who has an interesting point. And I think, well, we can talk later about all the villains of the series, but uh, you know, there was just a lot of really compelling stuff going on by this point in the, in the, um, in the first season. Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about the structure of this episode, and by the way, uh, a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff in season one with episode structure. The previous episode of this, the Spirit of Competition, also has kind of a fun um, use. It uses pro bending as a you know in these kind of three chunks as a metaphor for the problems that are going on between Korra and Mako and Bolin. Right. As you know, they start off great, and then Korra and Mako kind of fall off, and Bolin has to carry them, and then all of them hate each other, and they just do terribly, and Korra has to kind of eventually just pick up the slack and all of them just get over it. Uh, so, And I like that kind of... It was interesting. It was a little uh, maybe uh, didactic just in terms of the very clear-cut, like, this is what's going on uh, narrative. But I thought it was interesting. It's just not something that you see a lot on this show or even this kind of show, um, even if it's not... Even if maybe that's for a reason, but well, and the winner is also has a really cool narrative structure because, like you said, it starts off all about this, you know, pro bending stuff, right? And the you know, the the equal stuff is kind of tied to that right off the bat because Amon makes the threat and they kind of have to. You're not supposed to, you know, have forgotten about the equalists when this episode starts. Of course, yeah. but I think it does a great job at making you kind of forget about the equalists during this match, right? Because it goes on for a while without anything. So by the time it gets to this kind of climactic moment... And, it feels like a uh, surprise, yeah. Exactly. It's still, it feels like a surprise even though you knew it was probably going to happen. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's just a really cool way to kind of structure the episode to give such a large piece of it to this pro-bending match that you know ultimately doesn't matter. It's kind of, you know... And, and it kind of redeems the amount of time that they give to pro-bending... In the you know previous couple episodes, this is, takes up the first half of the first season. It redeems it because it was all done in service of this moment where it's all thrown away, and the show basically tells you this is the real threat. Right. While you know, while everyone was focusing on the wrong thing, because Aman and the Equalists are here, and they are you know serious business. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that. It's cool. Well, first of all, I find it funny that they sort of scrapped the pro bending stuff later on. Um, but it was cool to see pro bending in the first place. I just want to, you know, get that, make that clear that it wasn't. I didn't have a problem with pro bending in and of itself. And when we were first introduced to it, we got this cool new MMA style fighting that felt very different than what we saw in Avatar. Uh, but you know, of course, that eventually changed. We saw a lot more traditional fighting as the series went on. Uh, and new ways, new takes on traditional fighting. It wasn't just the same old, same old. Um, so I thought it was, it was just, it, it dragged for a little bit, you know. Uh, and, and then in terms of, you were talking about metaphor or what the pro-bending meant. For me, um, 
you know, part of the reason I, I didn't love the first season uh, was, you're right, the metaphor is very, you know, they don't have time to build it. You know, it, it, there's a lot of really cool parallels and um, you know, reflective narrative and all this cool stuff going on in seasons three and four because they have lots of time to do that. And they can also reflect things from previous seasons now, you know, with hindsight, um, which is very cool. With the first season, they didn't have that, and they thought they only had, you know, 12 episodes to get all of this out. And so for me, it didn't quite hit home, you know, because it felt too obvious. You know, okay, pro bending is amazing. You know, it, that's the level of metaphor we see in a sports film. You know, I mean, like a, when the game stands tall or one of those, you know, cheesy, you know, uh, motivational sports films about, you know, the team that, you know, and then you get the relationship subplots going on in the background it's this or or struggles and you know family struggles or whatever like that's the level of quote-unquote deep you know metaphor we're getting and for me that didn't hit home quite as much as you know anything we were seeing you know in later seasons that's i get that that's fair although i do want to say that i loved season one uh i know you did that, that's i'm just explaining my uh <laughs> yeah 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 and i know that uh i think the majority of the fan base is more in your corner uh, on season one, which I find a little odd. You know, I, I don't I, know. No, I, I, think, just... I think people are, not to speak for other, you know, fans, I think people are split because they feel, on one hand, they don't, the narrative structure was kind of weak. Uh, but on the other hand, the, you know, and what I was talking about, you know, is problematic. On the other hand, uh, you had this great villain, a uh, really interesting comparison of, um, a really interesting theme going on between vendors and non-vendors. Uh, that that whole thing was was fascinating. Um, so people are, remember those things and they really like them. But at the same time, we got and a lot of this. People were pissed at the end about that whole thing. Yeah, people were really mad. We we're about talking it. about that a little. The other yeah, we day. can talk. Yeah, and we can talk about that more later because uh, that is it was it was a problem for a lot of people. But I think so. There was a lot of good. There were a lot of good elements, and if they had left it as is, you know, I'm sure it would have been fine. Uh, you know, if we had only gotten one season. But it just – one of the big criticisms I would have had for it is that it just – you know, it didn't have the time or anything to build these really interesting, deep – like, I would have liked to have seen the theme of that season explored in more depth. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the first season is the the moment where Korra uh, gets really mad at the guy with the megaphone and grabs the megaphone from him, the one who's talking about bender or non-bender rights, uh, and she grabs the megaphone from him and – she starts trying to yell at the at the crowd and she realizes very quickly that she has very little platform you know to stand on and it's it's a really great moment because it's a what it <laughs> that's the check your privilege moment uh for Cora <laughs> and so I you know I thought that was great it was it was one of the most obvious um you know one of the one of the moments where we really saw the themes brought to the surface uh and and presented to us like basically on a silver platter it was not subtle but it was important because it really meant we were seeing Cora you know have to reassess what she believed about um you know how the how society was structured and and you know the other thing about the avatar is she liked to tell everyone she's the avatar and how great that is etc uh, in the beginning and not only is she a bender which makes her uh, you know puts her in a privileged class and all of the other reasons she's the son of the chief or she's the daughter of the chief etc but um she's also a bender of all four elements so she basically can't be discriminated against by any particular group of benders like she's she's in with any crowd because she can water bend and she can 
well, at the point she can't airbend, but she has the capacity to do all four. And so she really is not just privileged, but like super privileged. She has everything that you could want as a, um, so for her to take on, you know, the equalists who are, have a very legitimate point, it, it's hard to, to get into her corner. I don't, I mean, I first, I disagree in a, with the, in a good, in the, a good way, by the way, I'm to be clear. Yeah. 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 I, I disagree about the, uh, not spending enough time on the themes of the season. I think what really resonated with season one for me was this idea they keep returning to. And the scene you just talked about is one of the examples. This idea they keep returning to that uh, the villains could be right. That was never a question in The Last Airbender, right? Except, you know, Zuko notwithstanding, the big no, villain. No, like his, his, he was wrong. He, he was his when he was a villain. His mission was to capture the Avatar, which was wrong. There was no point to that. Well, I mean, like, but but on the other hand, obviously, that doesn't negate you know him being a good person. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't. The the point is like. But that's what's interesting the about these. Of, but that's what's interesting about these villains is that none of the ones in Korra do you ever feel like are good people. You always like I I don't I don't know about you, but I never felt like they were good people. It's just they were bad people with a good point. Whereas well, Zuko felt makes... like a good person with a terrible point, restoring but that's his the honor reverse. or whatever. Yes, yeah, the reverse. And I think so. I think that Korra was was unique in that. Well, I think that things were just uh, in terms of motivation, though. Things were a lot more black and white in the previous series, and you could say that even though Zuko, yes, he was, you know, he had the ability within himself to be a good person, and he embraced that eventually. Uh, that doesn't mean that his aims were good because of that. Um, and the Fire Lord, like we've talked about before, was never a complex or, you know, very, uh, more than one dimensional villain. And that's, I thought that was okay. I have no problem with that based in the context of the series. Um, but, but he, he never, just, he never gets never listed as like of, a great villain or anything by anyone. There was never any question that he was, that A, he might be a good guy or B, he, his plans might not be all that bad. Right. And what the, a theme they keep returning to in season one of Korra is the people you think are bad, you can't treat them like they're not, you human. know, exactly. You cannot just imagine them all wearing black hats and imagine yourself wearing a white hat and you can just treat them however you want because they're the bad guys. And one of my favorite scenes, well, you know what, just before you, before you, you move on, I actually want to, Point out that that actually was Aang's point in the last season is that despite how monstrous Ozai asks, or <laughs> despite how monstrous Ozai is, uh, he still has a responsibility as the Avatar, as an air nomad, to preserve life and to treat Ozai like a human. He may lock him up for eternity or whatever, but he's not, um, you know, he doesn't want to end his life. And part of that is that he's a, hu- you know, even though he's very one dimensional, he's still a human. So it's a. Uh, I think that that's a recurring theme throughout the whole franchise. Well, I think that where Aang starts and where Korra starts are very – they're inverse of each other. Where Aang oh, starts totally, yeah. with a complete you know, acceptance of his spiritual – of his spirituality and his spiritual responsibilities and just his spiritual persona. But he can't accept uh, being the Avatar. And throughout the course of the series, he has to learn to come to terms with that, and he has to learn, especially like you just said in that finale, how his responsibilities as the Avatar can, you know, cohere with his uh, air nomad teachings and his philosophy. Whereas Korra starts, you know, her first line in the series is, I'm the Avatar, you've got to deal with mm-hmm. it. And she starts completely, she has no problem with being the Avatar, she loves it, but she, what she has to learn is 
uh, the spiritual responsibilities that come along with that and how that can, how those can cohere with what she already knows to be as her, as her avatar responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of my, the other, one of my other favorite scenes is at the end of episode not, uh, eight, when extremes meet, mm-hmm. which is another phenomenal episode because that episode is all about how, you know, it's turning it on, turning what we've just been talking about on its head a little where instead of kind of finding the uh, not necessarily the goodness, but just finding kind of a little you know flicker of righteousness in the motivations of the bad guys, uh, we're finding kind of the maliciousness in the motivations of the good guys, where Tarlock uh, is rounding up all the non-benders and he's setting a curfew, and Korra, in this phenomenal <laughs> scene at the end, uh, storms into his office, and basically says, you're playing right into Amon's hands, you're doing exactly what he wants, you're treating non-benders like they're not people, you're using your bending abilities to oppress them, and Tarlock says, well, isn't that what you came here to do? Didn't you come here to use your bending abilities to intimidate me? You are no better than me, mm-hmm. and that's an, and that's okay, because that's how we need to get things done. Right. And that's we a fascinating moment. Exactly, yeah. It's like, look, we yes, we have this ability, and it might not be the most – it may not be ethical, but it's the only way to make sure that we can stop this from happening, you know, uh, stop the, the equalists from gaining ground and stop them from hurting people. And if we have to kind of uh, be the bad guys to the equalists that they are claiming that we are, then it's worth it. And he says to Cor basically in that moment, you know – you know deep inside your heart that that's true because you do that all the time, and that's what you're here to do right now. And also, by the way, then they go into another phenomenal, maybe my favorite fight scene in the entire first season, uh, Tarlock and Korra kind of just tearing apart his office. Oh, yeah, that is a great and scene. And then at the end, of course, he reveals he's a bloodbender, which is also amazing, <laughs> and a great twist for the end of that fight. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no that's a, it is a great episode. Uh, and again, I mean, that's the point where because, you know, you're... For, Instead of taking point A and B and making them, you know, putting them 10 miles apart as you can do when you have four seasons, uh, you only have 12 episodes here. And so by the time this episode turns up, you're already having Korra do something of a 180 on her previous position. And it works. You know, it's it's uh, it's fine in this um, – for, th- for these purposes. I just – yeah. I, anyway, but this episode, you're right. It, so this would be like a, the, the beginning of the, the – the other half of the arc, you know, falling down, coming back to where she, um, you know, again, has done a 180 on what her, her previous position was on the whole bender versus non-bender issues. Um, and yes, I agree. This, this whole fight was very cool. Um, I think the best water bending comes in season two. Uh, actually, oh, I, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean that, that the whole book is about water basically. Um, but I think that episode is the most, uh, or that that season has you know has the has the best wonderbending. Having said that, I think this is this is great. Uh, the other thing about this season that's interesting is they've brought bloodbending back, and bloodbending was a piece of the old series uh, that marked a you know a departure towards very adult things in uh, in book three, and uh, it also had meaning, and it was very interesting because you know Katara was very against bloodbending, and I think she's the one who gets it outlawed by the time Korra rolls around. Uh, 
because it it's it's too powerful. It's um, and the other thing that's interesting is that it's not just it's not just too powerful. It's also uh, it takes away control from somebody else. It takes away their ability to be human to make choices. You can't do anything in that situation. And so um, I think one of the other themes I think people miss with this is that it's not just, um, you know, Amon isn't just a hypocrite for being a bender. He's a hypocrite for being a, for trying to liberate people through control. Control being, you know, his his blood bending, which he uses, uh, you know, he tries, you know, I know um, we've talked about this privately, but um but he does use bloodbending on occasion, and uh, it's that's the I think the biggest problem with his his position and the reason why he's he's a hypocrite is that he doesn't, um, you know, he's using this tool that's so antithetical to his belief. You know, the only one who would be even more at fault for using this tactic would be you know Zahir later on because he's all for anarchy and freedom and etc. Uh, and so for him to use bloodbending would be even more ironic. But in this case, I think it still is. Um, you know, hypocritical of of Amon to use to be a bloodbender and to use it on occasion. Uh, you know, especially when he's taking people's bending away. And by the way, that's also what he's you know he's taking people's bending away. That's a form of control, uh, and he's using that as a way of as a means of liberating a, a population of people, which of course is not the best way to go about doing that. Well, it's just the idea of using the most uh, kind of vile, invasive. Uh, form of bending possible and you're using it while you're preaching you know equality and the kind of the evils the evils of benders right. uh, who use their power to oppress us this is the most oppressive form of bending it is it is there possibly could be and um yeah so it's not i really it's not just that he's a bender that kind of reveals him to be a hypocrite it's i think what's more shocking probably if you're an equalist is the idea that He's using blood bending of all things. Yeah, exactly. And um, and yeah, speaking of uh, things that people hated in season one, wow. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Amon being a bloodbender. Absolutely. You know what bloodbending? Actually, I realized what it is. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's one of the the deadly curses or whatever from Harry Potter. Is it Crucio? Oh, the yeah, the Imperio. Imperio. Imperius. Imperio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that is the same thing. I didn't basically yeah. even really consider that, but I think it's not really explored in Harry Potter. I don't think um, there are points not in the movies, certainly not in the movies for sure. In the book, they do a little bit of you know people who are they, talk, under... they get to talk about it more. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, they talk about it more, but it, for them, it's more of a question of uh, they're 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 doing what what Cora actually addresses in book four with a completely different idea. Um, but they're talking about Nazis and, you know, are the people who were under the Imperial curse, does that count as being a servant of Voldemort, you know, in the previous, you know, so there was a lot of question of like who, you know, he was just following orders. Was he under curse? Was he not? And that's the, the Nazi, you know, was he just following orders, uh, argument, you know, in the Nuremberg trials and everything like that. So, uh, or, and, and the Eichmann trials and things like that. So it's interesting because, in this, we get that with the more obvious connection, which is bloodbending, um, you know, where they – that question is raised again, as, as you said, with uh, with Amon. Um, and it's funny that people were angry. You know, you're, you, you told me – because I had forgotten about this, but you were, you were talking about how, you know, people were angry that Amon was a bender. Um, 
Specifically a bloodbender. Specifically a bloodbender. But people were mad that he was a bender in general because it was like, oh, he's a bender, you know, it's a hypocritical. Yeah, that's the whole point. You know, like, that's why people, <laughs> that's why the equalists are upset with him too. It, you know, <laughs> it's, that was the correct reaction to have um, that, he's a, that he's a bender. If he was just... Well, I, yeah. I think people thought that it took away legitimacy from his point, which... It does. From their perspective. From a correct perspective, they had thought, you've just spent the entire season trying to make the point that, you know he's actually kind of right in some of the things he says. And you kind of, you take away all of the legitimacy that you granted, previously granted that point by revealing him to be such a massive hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their perspective, I don't think that's true. I think that those points still stand. Uh, no, they, but I, they I, do. I, but I think, again, that's another thing that makes more sense in the context of the whole series, because every single season has that to some degree. And so now you can see that's what they're doing each season. They have characters who have a point, then go well beyond the point that they're supposed to be making. Um, but Korra can take something from the pre-extreme, you know, uh, approach to their, whatever their crusade is about. Yeah, and what I remember vividly is the just the vitriol over the fact that Amon was a bloodbender. And the reason, I was telling you this, from what I could understand, the reason that a lot of it uh, was just so hateful was because they – it feels like they're kind of brushing off this question of how does he do it? Uh, how does he take people's bending away? Because that was a big mystery. That was almost as big a mystery as who is he mm-hmm. uh, back when it was airing. Oh, and I remember that discussion. Say, that was really oh, – Yeah, we could talk about that uh, soon, yeah. Um, to kind of say just he uses bloodbending to do it and then to not – talk about uh, the mechanics of that, I really, really bothered some people because it kind of felt like, you know, this is the incorrect use of the term, and I'm aware of that, but this is the term that people were using. People were calling it like a deus ex machina, Mm -hmm. and what they were really meaning was that it was just, they pulled it out of their ass, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he uses bloodbending to do it. Whatever, who cares? Um, And, yeah, uh, I think you and I can both agree that basically it... uh, he, it was probably something to do with chi blocking. Yeah, sure. Uh, we can assume. You know, it doesn't. I don't think it makes kind of. I, I don't need to hear exactly how he does it. I'm comfortable with just kind of thematically what it means that that's how he's doing it. Um, but people were well, like, and, and I mean, once you've taken once, I think the leap is not that. The leap is simply that he can blood bend without the moon. As soon as you are accept that, then he that can would, do yeah, anything. Too. You know, um, because. Bloodbending, if you're bloodbent, you know, if you're in the midst of being controlled by someone else, you can't bend, right? You can't move. So uh, somebody who's that powerful that can do that without the moon, etc., makes this instance, um, or, yeah, it makes it, it totally plausible to me. I don't know, to my to my mind. Well, yeah, and in, in that flashback, when that question has to be addressed, you get Sokka kind of saying, well, hey, you know, I've seen lots of crazy stuff, and so... Who knows? It's if, if they say it's possible, uh, I'm I'm willing to hear him out. <laughs> well, and nobody thought um, metal bending was possible, and then it was. Exactly, yeah, and that was Sokka's whole point: is basically, look, there's all kinds of stuff that we don't think can ha- possibly happen until we see it, mm-hmm. so we shouldn't dismiss it just because we don't think it can happen. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. We shouldn't just say, well, they didn't explain how he does it. Well, it doesn't matter; he can do it, uh, and that's just a thing he can do. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, I, th- I thought that was that was cool. And the the other thing that I think on the topic of bloodbending and also healing, uh, this is an interesting thing they addressed in the first season without ever talking about it at all, um, overtly. 
there were some complaints in the old series that uh, there was a un- probably unintentional, uh, but then a gender bias um, about skills. Not metal bending, not a lot of other things, but specifically for the waterbenders about healing, uh, and then subsequently uh, bloodbending, because uh, with healing we only ever saw Katara do it, and then we saw uh, at the Northern Water Tribe they relegated all the women to do healing if they could, if they had the ability to, but um, we never saw men ever do it. We didn't see like in the in the whole thing with where Katara is supposed to be, you know, learning how to heal, and she doesn't want to, and she wants to go with Paku and that whole thing. Uh, we don't see like a, a male waterbender say, Oh, and I want to heal. Why can't I do that? We don't ever, we don't ever get that perspective. And I think it's in some episode of this season of Korra, where we see after one of the pro bending fights, there's a male healer in the background. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe working on Korra's leg or somebody gets hurt and there's a male, you know, uh, water bender who's who's doing the healing, which was actually pretty important because we've never seen that before. And to relegate a skill set like healing, which in the real world healing is a, um, you know, a stereotypical uh, position for women to be in, right? They're the caretaker, the caretakers, etc. Um, to to take this fantasy world and then impose the same set of restrictions on women again, and to say, oh well, it's the way the world works that only women have to be healers, uh, is kind of problematic um and of course they don't they don't ever go into they never state state that but we don't see an alternative and so there's no indication that men have that capacity uh and then to take blood bending which is we you know katara learns from hama and it's all about the moon and cycle cycles and things like that you start to go uh blood bending you know that also seems to have this strange female-centric bent and it's kind of questionable uh here we don't we get both of those things are completely those notions are destroyed uh we have men blood bending with or without the moon and we have uh men healing so i think that those are two things that I, people didn't really talk about but i think it's important well i yeah i never had that problem with the healing i never i somebody brought it up yeah, to me yeah. and i was very resistant to it at first it was like it's a fantasy world who cares but the people who made the show have the capacity to change it to whatever they want right and so well, i know the... but the point the whole point of that is that i don't think the point is only women can have this skill the point is that the women are only allowed to learn this right right no absolutely. Right? I, I mean that's the whole reason that that happens i don't know why i i just don't understand i don't get the assumption that because of that it must be that only women can can do this and men can't i think it's just that this is the thing that women are allowed to do because right of the that's what that episode is again tribe. again i don't think this was intentional i think this was an unintentional bias but by never showing men healing ever in the course of avatar the last airbender over the course of however many episodes that is you know that's a lot of episodes like 80 episodes or something like that uh they we never see this other side of the, the coin and i and we also never see anyone else bloodbend and i think that those two things um Good or bad. I mean, it, you could be like, oh, well, you know, they have this this added, you know, women are have the capacity to do way more with water bending than any male character does. You could look at it like that. But uh, just in terms of, you know, social structures of the way healing works in, in our society that we, you know, there's this presumption that women are the nurses or the, the mothers or the home home carers or whatever. Uh, and then to take that and make it a part of the biology or the myth- mythological biology of these characters is... I think it carries with it a little bit of, you know, questionable. But again, it's immediately dismantled in this season. And it's it's funny because it's never 
done in a, and it probably wasn't done in a conscious way when they dismantled it either. They probably were just like, no, we're going to have two male blood vendors. Well, yeah, I don't, you know I, don't, I, mean? I don't think it was, I don't think it was intentional, but yeah, I, I do. I don't think they was ever, I think, yeah, I think they were just, you know, in that. I just appreciated it. Phenomenal. <laughs> by the way, can we talk about that episode with Katara and the Northern Water Tribe? Because I think about her fight with Paku a lot. Right. Uh, that's an amazing scene. It is. Well, yeah, I, I think the intention, obviously, with the depiction of that structure is to show, look, you know, women are relegated to, to this Of course. It was made with, thing. absolutely, with, with the best intentions. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 never, I never thought that, you know, the uh, implication was that uh, this is a, a woman-exclusive skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I I never never thought of that. Thought of that, right? And you don't you don't necessarily think of these things, you know, on that. Well, first of all, I think we're both men, so I didn't either until someone brought it up to me. <laughs> that's fair. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, for example, if you look at um, Star Wars, you know, to bring up a series that had a huge influence on on this show. Um, oh yeah. You know, if you could watch a New Hope and be like, well, it's not that all women are princesses, you know, and they you know end up sitting around waiting to be rescued by, you know, some random new Jedi. Uh, but in the movie, we only have one female character, and that's all that happens with her character. You know, she shoots a couple of people, but that's about it. Uh, well, I mean... Uh, all right, I don't, don't want to get Star into Wars, it, but I'm just but... saying that it's like, it's like well, it, the suggestion isn't that o- women can only be princesses in this universe, no, but, you, yeah, but yeah. if that's the choice that you make to only show... The only female character you have only does that, then you have a representation problem. If you that's true. if you exclude them I, I entirely, would... then you've you've actually fixed it a little bit because you're not showing any women, but you're also not you know imposing a set a structure on them where that's the only thing that happens. So it's just interesting because these abilities are so cool when we first see them, but in hindsight, it's kind of interesting also that we only ever see women doing them. And then again, in this season, we get a little bit of a different perspective. I all right, well, yeah, I would. Uh, that's absolutely <laughs> true. That's absolutely true. What you just said. I would quibble with Leia as an example in A New Hope. Uh, I think that her, the depiction of her character is on a steep decline after that. Especially oh, it gets worse. It does get worse. Absolutely. It gets much worse. Yeah. But I, you know, the but last there are time more I characters Hope, in the other movies. So I just wanted, you know, in that movie, there's very yeah. few. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, and I was. I remember being uh, recently being struck by In A New Hope how proactive she can still be despite kind of archetypically fulfilling the uh, the, the damsel in distress right, right, uh, right. model you know or, you know as soon as as soon as they open the door to her cell she's kind of like all right how are we going to do this right. and they have you know han and luke have no idea what's going on and she has to kind of take the take the lead as soon as she's there um anyway but yeah it's it's i agree that uh, what you just said is absolutely true about i mean do you want to talk about the strong female character cuz there's a whole horror conversation <laughs> There's, I, I mean, yeah, I could go on and on. Right, of course, of course. Um, I think Korra in some ways changed, or in many ways changed, a lot of the mythology of Avatar, um, especially with beginnings. We should talk about season two. Yeah. Um, but it also fixed things. Like, I think beginnings was in a big... I know we've talked about this, but I think in a lot of ways it, it helped fix the finale of Avatar because for me the lion turtle was kind of out of nowhere uh, and they never talked about it prior to that. Um, but... You know, when we got beginnings, we got more of a backstory on a lot of these these issues, and we got to see it made more sense, I think, for me, in that um, in that it sort of retconned this this moment. You're like, no, 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 the lion turtles are part of this universe. See, look at all this stuff that Juan did. Um, and a, again, this is another issue of uh, with the the water uh, with the healing and the blood bending. I think that there was another thing that they again this one this time probably unintentionally. Uh, help to fix. Oh, one thing I wanted to just mention before we go into that. From book one, the, uh, my other favorite moment that 
still resonates is when we first see Lynn use seismic sense. Because uh, I think it's cool that she's, you know, characteristically sort of like tough and, she, you know, there's a lot of, you know, parallels in their behavior. But, uh, and we know she's Toph's daughter, etc. But seeing her use seismic sense, I think was such a cool moment because, you know, she clearly learned that from Toph. So there's sort of a an implication there without being too overt that she, there was some period of time where her, where Toph taught them A, how to metal bend and B, how to use seismic sense, etc. So I think that was a really cool uh, it's one of my favorite moments. It's when they're they're freeing all of the cops. Uh, but speaking of season two, uh, interesting season, really interesting. Um, I know you've you've gone back and forth on it in terms of how much you enjoyed it. Now that you've seen the whole series, how do you feel? Yeah. All right. Um, I'm just trying to look at my notes. Uh, I kind of wrote down some things for each season. I have one word for season two, and that is movers. Movers. And. That's all I got. That's, uh, all. <laughs> That's the only thing you've got from that whole whole season. And, and beginnings, but like, what else is there to say about beginnings? Uh, the movers subplot is phenomenal satire. The movers themselves are hilarious, and I I wish I could just get like a supercut of all of those scenes. I'm sure they already exist. Somewhere. I hope so because I would like to watch that and just really not anything else in season two. Yeah, you know, um, I think season two is good for a good chunk of it. It just it's it declines after a while. But I actually think the first maybe three quarters are good, even up through beginning. Oh, I, yeah, hmm. uh, I, that's I would disagree. Yeah, I would think the opposite. Really? I think the first everything up to beginnings is just a is horribly boring. What? And then it's it starts to get get good after that. Well, okay, first of all, spirit bending as an idea is just I think really cool. I think the the Tonrock Unalak conflict is interesting. I think Unalak's actually interesting until he starts going all I'm going to fuse with Vatu and become evil and like this whole ridiculous plot that came out of nowhere it felt like. Like it came out of no it's almost like beginnings had to be there just because they were like, Oh crap, we didn't actually explain that Vatu exists. <laughs> and then they had to fill in this whole because otherwise what would Unalak do for the last couple of episodes? You know, suddenly the spirit appears. Probably you know anyway, so it's 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 like beginnings had to be there, but it's it would be better if beginnings had happened maybe in The Last Airbender so that it didn't seem like, Oh, Vatu's back. You know, in this it's like Vatu exists and now that's Unalak's entire plan. Um so that was weird. Uh, and then, you know, his, I don't know, the final fight is kind of dumb, you know, the giant Korra versus giant, the old, but what I do like about this season is that, first of all, the Unalak Tonrock fight is one of my favorite fights in the whole series, because it's so quick, uh, so well choreographed, and also what's cool about it is that you see, um, Tonrock and Unalaku have completely different like views on the world styles, and you see, and they're brothers, and you see them fight, and the fight is totally reflective of their personalities. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and I also the other thing I liked about the finale, and I just want to because I I did poo poo the the final fight is um, the moment where Rava is getting attacked. I think it's in the second to last episode, uh, yeah. and it's so devastating seeing her get like slashed and seeing all of the past lives um destroyed what's funny about the season is uh it has huge impacts for the rest of the series even if people don't like it you know one way or the other she loses contact with all of her past avatar lives she opens up a spirit portal uh both both of the spirit portals um to reunite the uh mortal in the spirit world uh like these are huge things that happen it's just that unalak's not all terribly interesting um 
And I, it's funny that you like the movers because I really, those are the most useless parts of this season. They don't have an impact on anything. What matters is, you know, I think the Mako yeah, detective storyline, like, yeah. they're, yeah. they're, they're fun, but they're nothing that, I mean, you may or, I, I don't know if I would even say they're fun, uh, but they're whatever, but they just don't move anything forward. They have no purpose. The only value of the mover plot line, the only value is uh, that it introduces uh, Varric and Julie. And that's it. Yeah, but I don't care because everything else is boring. <laughs> Honestly, the Mako detective stuff so boring. Oh my the, gosh, that was the so Civil much War better. stuff so boring. I just don't. The even, Civil War, the Civil War stuff now. wasn't wasn't terribly interesting. The twins never really did it for me. But the um, oh yeah, the twins. Ew. Yeah, it just you know I don't know. Um, so they never really did it for me. But the the detective stuff was great because for me, it a I thought the relationship stuff was way better in this season. Like. Orders of magnitude. Not that that took very much. And a lot of people disagree. A lot of people have the exact opposite opinion. I, I don't understand that. Season one. Yeah. Season one is the. You if you ask someone to write write a love triangle with person A, person B, and person C, you could fill in Mako, uh, Korra, and Bolin slash Asami, I guess. And you would have you could write that whole plot line. It, there's nothing to it. In season two, we actually have, um, you know. Korra, you know, acts irrationally because she always acts irrationally. But you actually see Mako has something of a point about how, like, the the she's acting. Somebody's actually calling her out on like her crazy behavior. You have her, you know. Meanwhile, he has actual things to do as opposed to the first season where he did nothing the entire season of of import. Um, here he's solving a mystery. He's implicating Varric and all this other stuff. He's the one driving the plot for it. And for me, it was just. You know, when they break up in the uh, police station, I thought that was a great scene, you know, and or when she has um, amnesia and doesn't remember the relationship. Some some people really hate that that whole yeah. thing. I, I I think it's interesting to see his character as he, um, uh, you know, he has to make a decision on the on that point, you know, and say whether or not <laughs> they're in a relationship still because she doesn't remember the fight. Um I don't know. For me, that was all just – it wasn't brilliant. It wasn't great relationship writing. It was certainly much uh, – pales in comparison to what we saw in seasons three and four. But uh, it was such a giant jump up from the previous season, and it was something I hadn't necessarily oh. seen before. Oh, boy. Yeah. No, I, I completely disagree. <laughs> I hated the romance in season two. It's all oh my God. Uh, you know, like you said, season Not one, Bolin stuff, he, by the way. Bolin was barely in season two romantically, and when she was, he was, it was with Ginger, and that was the whole thing that I really hated. completely oblivious and, yeah, whatever. But, um, yeah. It, Not it, oblivious, it, it, predatory. He was a predator. It was gross. That, uh, sure, yeah, sure. He <laughs> was awful. Um, <laughs> Bolin is awful for a long time. <laughs> Um, it's only until like se- the end of season three and then really season four that he becomes bearable for me. Yeah, that, that's 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 fair. <laughs> I, I will give you that. But um, is the romance in season one formulaic? Sure. Uh, but it's a good formula. And whatever formula they're using in season two is awful. The like you said, the amnesia thing is just the worst, most is the most contrived. Like we need to inject some drama into this love triangle. Uh in the whole the writing of of Mako first of all you say that Mako has a point in these scenes Mako reveals himself to be the worst consistently in season 2 
He's, I hate him in season two. He is a complete monster. <laughs> I hate him so much. Um, Even a terrib- monster is more than the nothing he was in the first season, though. He doesn't do anything in the first season. He has no contribution to the plot. He stands in the corner and broods the entire time while cheating on people. That's his entire character. He doesn't do anything of import. In season two, he actually, you know, the whole plotline with Varric is actually fairly interesting. And not only that, I mean, of course, it's hindsight. And looking at season two on its own, perhaps this doesn't work. But um, he sets up the whole, you know, that's the seeds of the Bolin-Mako uh, disagreement or the, their relationship. The first season doesn't, what, he stole his girlfriend? Oh, okay. You know, barely stole his girlfriend in the first season. That's not really a relationship builder. Here we have, you know, Bolin's doing the movers, and then his interactions with Mako are really interesting, um, and set up what we eventually see in seasons three and four, particularly season four. If we look back at what Mako does in season two, I feel like ultimately what it amounts to is that he is absent from the movie premiere so that Bolin can be sad on the balcony and eventually, like, figure out the plot and implicate Varric uh, in front of everybody. Like, really, what is Mako... Like, when you get right down to it, yes, Mako is doing something, but he's not accomplishing anything. And no, I found that does, so he frustrating. Figure, he figures out the entire... You know, he doesn't trust Varric, and he, he's the one who believes Varric's the... Um, you know, he... Well, yeah, no, and no one... And he he does nothing with that information, and it's only because... Well, he tries. Uh, it's Bolin, only because the other he tries, cops sure, but don't it's, listen it's just, to him. It's, yeah, but that was just frustrating, and it's only because Bolin uh, beats up those guys in the arena during the premiere... Uh, and one of them screams that it was Varric who hired them, that Varric is implicated. Uh, and Mako didn't contribute nothing to that, but when it takes, like, oh, at that point, 11 episodes to get to that point, and Mako doesn't even get the conclusion of that arc, it's just frustrating to me. And, and you know, back to but just back to the romance stuff. Uh, Again, it's not Mako. brilliant. I just want to be clear here. I don't... I, I would not watch this for the romantic subplot. It was just, I was so relieved in personally that they were leaving it, were, were trying something a little bit different than the first season because the first season really just graded on me. I, I'm, a, I'm one of those people who, who really has a hard time with cliche unless it really is done in a way that makes me feel, like for example, I don't know why, but I'm a Love Actually fan. The movie is riddled with cliché, right? It's every romantic cliché in one movie uh, and a bunch of different storylines. some reason, I don't know, it, it works for me. It's fine. It's, uh, it, it amuses me. It's, uh, it's emotional, emotionally in, engaging. I don't know why it works. It does. Um, but for the most part, like if I hear a line of dialogue in a movie, I actually just tweeted this. There was a line of dialogue in Big Hero 6 where someone looks in a, a doorway and says, uh, uh, guys, uh, you're going to want to see this. How did that line make it out of the first draft of that movie? Are you kidding me? What planet do we live on where you can literally say a line that is in every movie for the past hundred years? Somebody has said that stupid line, and it, there's a lot of lines like that. And for me, I can't hear that and not immediately be taken out of the film and be like, well, this is the dumbest script I've ever heard in my life. And what's funny is that a good chunk of that script is fine. It's just like there would be moments where people would just say these really awful, cliched lines. And so here, in this case, we see this very cliched art. You know, it, it wasn't executed well. It wasn't So for me, even if it's not good, something different is still better than not good and cliché. Something not good and different is better than something not good and cliché. And so that's why I preferred mm. season two. Yeah, that's where I disagree. I am... 
I am fine with resting with on cliche, established. If you do well, well, yeah, because you can't. Like at some point, you know, we're a hundred years into this medium. You guys, I think it's fine to rest on your laurels occasionally, as long as you're not doing it in a lazy way. As long as you're like actually putting some effort into it generally. And they did that in this first season. Well, I, you know, relatively, I think no. it's it's executed fine. I don't. I think it's executed. You know, I think it's extremely solid, lazy. Solid C plus B minus. <laughs> but season two, the scenes between Mako and Korra uh, in the first half of season two are the worst writing on. <laughs> And anything in the series, they're atrocious. Uh, if you look at these scenes, especially in the rest of the, in the context of the episodes that they're in, Korra transforms into a completely different person whenever she's around Mako. Whenever she's in conversation with Mako, all of a sudden, she is just like a, a, a ball of, of raging fury, and she just hates everything, and she screams at him. And I get why, you know, she, obviously this is because this relationship doesn't work. No, but this I don't think that's what it is so at all. clearly doesn't work. No, I don't think that's what it is at all. I don't think it's about the relationship not working. I mean, it doesn't work, right? But I don't think that's why she transforms, quote, unquote. I think that's where her outlet is because she's so having such, such a hard time dealing with her actual obligations in the, in the real world. And I think that's true to relationships. You know, if you're having a bad day at work or whatever, um, oftentimes, that, or just, it doesn't even have to be a relationship, just a friend. Uh, Oftentimes that'll ricochet back onto you know the people who you spend time with. You'll that's where you vent. Uh, or if you're not good at handling things, you you know take it out on someone else, even though it's not their fault. And I think that's that's what's going on here. It's not because the relationship's so toxic that she can't handle it. I disagree because Mako's not. I think the reason that she keeps returning to this to Mako, if if what you're saying is true is because Mako is not at all supportive. And Mako pr- provides a good outlet for her anger in that way because he will always fight back against her. Uh, you know, always. In every one of those scenes, he, you know, he fights her on every single thing she says. He does not but offer he's help right. when she asks for it. Because her, her points are terrible. I mean, I haven't seen these episodes in a while, but I've, I remember her, her making terrible decisions. And he's like, no. I'm not going to just unconditionally support you on things that make no sense whatsoever. And meanwhile, he's actually like trying to solve this case, etc. And so for for him, I don't know. It, it seemed like he was reasonable, and she was being unreasonable throughout all of these scenes. Well, that's the point. I, she is being unreasonable, but she the fact is that she's not. She doesn't act that way when she's interacting with anyone else. And the only reason that that can exist is because their relationship is so terrible and so toxic. And by the way. If you, I mean, you look at Mako's actions. Oh my God! The instant, the instant that she leaves, he's back with Asami, and then he, you know, he lucks out because she doesn't remember that they broke up when she gets back, and he just—he's not back he's with li- Asami. He kisses. She kisses him once at the warehouse after all this stuff is stolen. But that, but she then she looks so frustrated. She she's so well because she was angry she him. kisses him and then she's upset about it afterwards when when he yeah because he lies to Cora he lies and says oh yeah we never broke up we're still in a no no I know why she's that. upset but I'm just saying she's basing that on one time when she kissed him it's not like he kissed her and like said oh you know I was really wanted to be with you or whatever that's not what happens she she kisses him and then she's got this whole idea in her head about how that relationship is going to somehow take off in Cora's absence. And then she gets upset when that's not her fantasy doesn't become a reality, even though he never instigated any of that. No, you, you gotta you gotta rewatch season two. Mako is a horrible, horrible person. All right, he's I, really a horrible person. I remember exactly what scene you're talking about, and that's the only bit of the quote unquote 
getting back together we see, and that's all it is. And I I don't think that qualifies. He doesn't kiss her. It's not like he goes, oh, I really wanted to be with you or something. That never happens. She kisses him. She takes agency because in the situation. Because he's, ter- he's, he's a terrible boyfriend. He's terrible at being in relationships. He's just really, really bad at it. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, really, I'm, not, honestly, I'm not defending him lying to, to Cora at all. I'm not saying yet, that. Sure. I'm just saying that, like, she's upset about something that wasn't a thing. You know what I mean? That's like getting upset about somebody who you, like, really like, and then they end up dating someone else and being like, well, you know, that person sucks. It's like, well, you, you never were in a relationship with this person. You don't really have a right to be upset with them. You know what I mean? So that that's that's Asami in that situation for me. She decided to kiss someone who was recently out of a relationship and may or may not be like over with. You know, I don't know. It just didn't seem legitimate. Like yeah, I, I can't I, see her perspective on that. Uh, no, I really just <laughs> I, I cannot I cannot. No, nothing that Mako does in this season is at all resonates for me at all. I just think he's generally. Uh, you know, lame at best <laughs> well, we, and terrible at worst. Well, we can both agree that it was great that he took a back seat in season three. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, definitely. And hey, it, if it, it, for all we're talking about, it, it made room for Korra and Asami. It did. So it did. It was all worth it. <laughs> was it? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but I do agree that there was, um, you know, I, in retrospect, like I we've talked about before, you know, the, the Korra and Asami thing really works interestingly from this perspective. And it's cool to look back on seasons one and two and their whole romantic subplot, knowing that it's all transient, you know, we won't see it uh, in the, in future seasons. Uh, and not only will we, will we not see it, we'll actually see a new relationship blossom between two characters who have no romantic interaction in the first two seasons. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, there is there's and and it's just funny because in season three they knew they they never really figured out I think what they wanted to do with Mako and he becomes. See the thing is here's here's my problem with your dismissal of him in season two. His values and hey the way he behaves in like say the finale of season four isn't a transformation for me. For me, it's he sucks with like women and relationships and he seems to just be a like a. a compulsive philanderer and we never see a change in that behavior because he just doesn't date anyone else he just goes i can't handle it so i'm gonna do my own thing um but what he does you know when he's he tells bolin to go and he he, he's in the the suit with kuvira and he electrocutes the the core or whatever the spirit vines um that whole that whole behavior that he exhibits there is in my opinion completely in line with his detective, hold on, uh, is completely in line with his detective, uh, his you know sort of bureaucratic but righteous detective persona that he's had since season two. So I think that's where that's why the other reason I like season two is we first see him like he's a terrible person when it comes to relationships and things like that. Sure, in many ways he he's kind of sucks, but um, when it comes to like trying to do the right thing, trying to figure out who's really responsible for a crime or whatever, he's and he's good at judgment. He figures out Varric is, you know, kind of a slime ball, and all these things are uh, first established in season two. And we don't really see it. There's no change. He's kind of a flat line. But in season by season four, we still see that same Mako appear. So I think that that's why season two is important. Um, with regard to Mako. 
Uh, I don't know. Because they finally figured out what to do with this character. You can't describe his... You have a prequel, Star Wars prequel syndrome, you know, character syndrome with the first season. You can't describe any character from that season uh, except for maybe you could Asami a little bit. You might be able to describe her as smart. Not Korra? No, and Korra. And, of course, Korra, because she's the main character. You have this a little bit there. But, like, Bolin is the funny guy. Like, maybe. And then, you know, and depends on your style of flavor of humor. Well, like, you can't describe Zuko. Uh, sorry, Zuko. You can't describe Mako. <laughs> you can't describe this, this character at all. And that's Zuko, exactly, is the problem. Because, you know, of course, everyone was thinking of Zuko when they saw him. They're like, oh, a brooding firebender character. You know, w- there's just not a lot there um, to talk about. Even Zuko you could talk about in by the first season, the first episode. He comes off the boat, and, you know, he's like, he's pompous, he's determined he's kind of a jerk he's looking for the avatar he's you know there's a lot of ways to describe zuko there's if the whole season there's nothing whereas by season two at least you could say he kind of sucks he's kind of a a jerk or you know he's a he's committed to being a policeman and the policeman mentality of you know trying to solve a crime bring the the unjust to lights etc i think that and that is what continues for the rest of the the two seasons the last two seasons uh, no, I, I know. <laughs> I, 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 think I feel like that... I, I feel like I spend a lot of time making points, and your responses are usually just no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely, <laughs> I, I appreciate everything you're saying, and I, th- I don't think any of it's illegitimate. But I don't. Well, that's think good. That <laughs> just from yeah, well, yeah, just for me, it doesn't, it doesn't cancel out what I see in him in season two, which is nothing good. <laughs> nothing good. Um, and he turns, or he does turn around when he kind of in seasons three and four when he accepts that. Uh, he's not very good at relationships, and he has to kind of throw himself into his work. And I like when Korra approaches him early in season three when they're about to go look for more airbenders, and she's kind of like, she comes to him with a peace offering because he's so stiff and awkward, and he just doesn't want to... You get the sense that he just doesn't want to ruin anything Mm -hmm. by getting into it again. He just wants to kind of stick to what he's good at. And she approaches him like, hey, look, you know, we're not mad at you anymore. Uh, we need your help, uh, will you come help us? And he has to rebuild that that trust with them, even though, you know, and then they're, they're, Korra and Asami, I don't think unreasonably, are kind of teasing him because they're much more open to rebuilding that rela- uh, friendship than he might, than he clearly expects either of them to mm-hmm. be. Um, but, it, you know, which is why I kind of like, I, I think that, the way that Korra and Asami interact with Mako, as briefly as they do, is really fun in season three. Um, but yeah, I think that Mako, once he kind of once he kind of figures out what he's good at, he becomes a much more tolerable, much more. And, and the same is honestly the same is true of Bolin, like you were saying. I think once Bolin kind of figures out also that he's this whole thing with you know the way. No, but I would like say Bolin has a much a clearer arc. You know what I mean? To, to me, it's like he's an immature, Maybe. sort of unrequited love, obsessed kind of character in the first season. In the second season, he becomes pompous and full of himself because he's finally getting attention, and so he can't like handle it, and he starts being a you know a jerk in that regard. And then uh, you know in season three, he's he starts to evolve a little bit, although he still you know ruins serious moments with Aplom. And then in the last season, he's you know I I don't know we've disagreed on this. I think this is when he he realizes that there's something more important to put forth, you know, put put before himself. Like, you know, he, he becomes more selfless, I think, in that last season. And uh, whereas Mako, I think, figures out what he's good at in season two 
he's good at de- detective work. He still continues to suck at being in relationships. And it's sort of like that's the overlap. Seasons two through four, he's detect you know, he's doing detective stuff or detective like stuff. Even in season three he's doing that and Bolin specifically states that he's you know, Oh, I love it when you're doing the detective stuff. Yes, and so does the audience. Uh that was in the stakeout. And in um uh in seasons one and two, so two overlapping with two from the, the detective stuff is the relationship stuff and that sucks i think two is the transition so again it's a i don't know for me that's he he learns very quickly that he is he works well taking orders being a soldier being a cop and that's where he finds uh the most peace and that's where he becomes the most interesting character um the most interesting the most most interesting version of himself okay not the most interesting character (laughs) no Absolutely not. Um, no. And I'd actually say, and I didn't say this, I know we've, uh, especially at the beginning when we first started doing this with season three, um, this series, uh, I used to say that Korra was a very uninteresting character and uh, that there were other characters who I just, I don't know, I enjoyed more. Um, I think now with the series as its completion, uh, I think Korra has become much more interesting uh, and actually was probably would probably be among the most interesting, if not the most interesting character on the show. Yeah, I think now that you can see her full arc... Just to clarify uh, that, that ranking system, it is not, it's not Mako. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, no. that was... Oh, I know I said it, as soon seat. as I said it, I was like, oh, he's, that's going to come out weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, and I would agree with you that I think Korra is... If, if not in the running, then I think absolutely now we can say the most interesting character on the show just now that we can see her full arc and uh every how everything that happens to her and everything that she does plays into that right um not my favorite character i think that's a separate question mm-hmm. but i do think the most interesting absolutely. absolutely so then we move into book three which is the beginning of the second half of this series uh the way we've broken it down in the past um <clears throat> and apparently also the creators and the nick believes it's the Part of the first part of the second season, if you go on a twenty-six episode arc uh, sort of model. So, um, yeah, what do you? Th- what were your standout episodes from this, uh, or moments, I guess? All right, yeah, um, I, I completely agree. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, but yeah, favorite moments in season three besides just everything. Um, hmm. Besides just everything. <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite season, uh, and we can talk about maybe kind of how we would rank them uh, mm-hmm. later. Later, but this is this is still my favorite season of Korra. I just think it maintains the kind of uh, awesome uh, breakneck action pace of, of season one, but also some of the complexities in uh, in the in the plotting. Not of season two, but uh, it. it it complicates the plotting and increases the kind of maturity of everything that's going on thematically, I guess is what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. in a really, uh, really cool way. And, you know, uh, the red Lotus is the whole concept of the red Lotus is an interesting idea because like we've been talking about this constant core theme of, of this, uh, you know, the, the, the light and the dark being so closely intertwined, you cannot separate them. It's just, it's, it's inappropriate. It's, it's like vulgar, to even consider something like that because they can't exist without each other, even in individual people. So I like the idea of the Red Lotus being this kind of darker uh, perversion of the White Lotus. Absolutely, but yeah. It, yeah. In terms, of, I mean, and this this episode is called, uh, this season is um, is called Change, but the next one's called Balance, and of course that's a 
it's important, whatever the name of uh, the last book is, is probably important to thematically for a lot of this. I mean, change, I mean, each of the books really, I think, reflect errors, as we've talked about, thematically relevant throughout, because Korra really becomes, um, comes to adapt the air nomad mentality by the final book. In, in some ways, you know, she becomes a lot looser. Um, although she's a waterbender, so the fluidity, you would think. But uh, we have, obviously, change in spirits being huge themes and balance. Uh, so, yeah, and we already see early signs of that in this. in this, uh, And I, even in season two, you know, when reuniting the um, the spirit world with the mortal world. So, yeah, absolutely. I, if you go back and listen to our very first episode of this podcast, uh, when we're talking about uh, the first, oh my God, it was the first three episodes of season three because they were all released at the, at the same time. Ah, uh, right, yeah. Um, I was talking about the vines in Republic City and how for a minute, like, I was wondering if, uh, is the whole season going to be about these vines? Like, what is the deal here? And it actually wasn't until recently that I was thinking about it, and it kind of dawned on me uh, what the vines come to represent. And there's this whole idea of not just of change in season three, but of, like, resurgence. Uh, you know, the idea that you cannot, there are things you cannot suppress, and if you try to, they will come back at you str- even stronger. Right. And the, the, the light and the dark represented in, you know, the airbenders and airbending coming back, but also the Red Lotus coming back. And, um, those and, and Korra things. coming back. In, uh, in book four. She's I guess, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, like, specifically in the arc of, of season three. Um, although I guess, hmm. We get, well, we could talk about the end of season three, uh, certainly, and how that plays into it. But uh, I like the idea of these two things that are kind of back from the dead, stronger than ever. Right. Just, like, going at each other, fighting for dominance. Uh, uh, that's really interesting, and I like how the vines kind of uh, show off Korra's inability to control that fact. You know, she is completely uh, impotent in her... F- when she's faced with this opponent who just, you know, it's like it's like the Hydra. You cut off one head and even more will grow back. Right, right, right. Um, and we see that reflected at the end of the season when she is taken out of commission and, you know, oh, can we just talk about it right now? I mean, we've talk, <laughs> we talk, We did an episode. Now we're moving into the part of the series where we've done a ton of episodes covering right, right, right. each episode in detail. Um, but, yeah, that final scene where she's just completely you know, broken and, and just dead inside and having to watch the, her, you know, friends and her, and her allies, uh, backing up the point that the person who tried to kill her was trying to make that the world doesn't need her anymore. Mm -hmm. And that they're, you know, this whole season is presenting her with these things in the world that she cannot control. And the answer that comes at the end of the season is not, well, you can find it in yourself to control, but it's no, you can't, you cannot, there's nothing you can do. That's just so, like, so brutal, but such great storytelling. Yes, that's very mature, too. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the uh, the things I like about this season, and uh, and I, something I forgot to mention about season two, um, we get more of the spiritual side of things. So we, we got it in season two. We got, you know, there's a lot of spirit-related things. That was uh, sort of the theme. Um, we saw the dark spirits and the spirit portals and everything. Uh, and also something I forgot to mention. So Wan Shi Tong, definitely a highlight of that, that book. Uh, we got to that whole thing in the, in the library. Uh, and also seeing Iroh 
again, which is a, was a big deal. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's the whole Spirit World episode. Uh, I think it's towards the end. Um, but it's it's excellent. It's really good when Korra becomes a little kid again. Um, yeah, that, that, whole, that whole thing is great, and I had totally forgotten about it, but it's, it's, it's a big deal. But again, here we get more Spirit World stuff, and not just Spirit World, but Spirit World intertwining with the mortal... Uh, the stuff going on in like Korra's life. So we get um, Zaheer uh, meditating in the in the grove and uh, having that whole conversation. I think that's one of the the best moments in season three is where Zaheer sort of explains what the Red Lotus is and talks to. Uh, it, it's in the stakeout, uh, and um, it's a great moment because we get this whole backstory on what what the Red Lotus is. We get the weird Unalak connection, which never really made any sense. Um, and in fact, they make fun of in remembrances in book four. Um, <laughs> yeah, with the phone call. Yeah, they do because they're like you just like left, left. You know what I mean? The the it's almost like the creators were aware that it was kind of an odd connection. Um, but you know, so we get all this um, spiritual connection stuff going on. And I don't mean spiritual connection for the characters, but spiritual connection like the show connected more to the spiritual side of things in seasons two and three. Um, and I think that that's an important element that was huge in the last airbender and not as big in this series. So, uh, I think that was one of my favorite aspects of this and that the, the main villain was an airbender, which was a huge deal. And also not just an airbender, but very spiritual, um, kind of like Unalak, but Unalak was spiritual in a different way. Um, I guess in some ways Unalak was more spiritual because Unalak's mission was to, uh, you know, to fuse with a spirit and, but it wasn't just to use the spirit world as a tool for dominance. I don't think. Whereas the definitely was, I mean, he was spirit world was where he found, uh, he was able to, you know, try, he was trying to unlock his full potential as an airbender. It's where he used to like, uh, to meet with people, um, and to, you know, in secret, it was more of a tool for him. Uh, but on like a, a simply the level of, being aware of the spiritual side of the Avatar universe, which is very important. I think season three was, yeah, it really worked for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, what else is there to say? You know what I mean? Yeah. And not, I mean, not just because I feel like, like I said, we've, we've talked about season three in detail, but um, it's just so, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> season three is awesome. Season do you have three is great. Uh, do you have favorite uh, favorite episodes? Yeah, uh, well, I think uh, it's a toss up. I think "Long Live the Queen" is amazing, uh, and not just because of that. Uh, you know, the scene where Zaheer kills the queen or right. takes out the queen, as they had to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember we talked about that um, that they couldn't say she was killed; they had to keep kind of writing around it. Um, yeah, what was the other one? Oh, the ultimatum. Oh, that's obviously. so funny. Yeah, those are the two I've written down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ultimatum. I think is the best episode. I mean, Long Live the Queen yeah. was where we. I think it's a stakes episode. It's kind of like the blood mending episode from Book Three of uh, Last Airbender, where we see we, not not in the same way, but in that you know it's a uh, ratcheting up the maturity um, where we see someone die on screen basically, uh, and it's it's really brutal. And with season. Um, sorry, and then with the ultimatum, we get this incredible choreography. This whole fight scene is so, so well done. Um, we get to see Zaheer and Tenzin fight, which is super cool. 
And uh, we also get this unbelievably depressing ending, which, again, we thought was Tenzin's death. Um, and for all intents and purposes, on its own, could have been Tenzin's death. So it's not, you know, illeg- I don't I don't think we were off base. Um, yeah. And I so, almost kind of wish it was, because he doesn't, I feel like... He doesn't justify his own existence for the rest of the franchise. Yeah, like you said, it might as well have been his death, because uh, he doesn't um, really... I feel like that's the apex of his arc. Everything else is epilogue, really, for him. I think the end of his arc is the end of season two. Like I, that's an interesting thing we can talk about. That Tenzin, Tenzin's whole character arc is concluded in the uh, the fog of lost souls, and after that, it's just he's he's just there, and he gets to be do the mentor thing a lot in season three. But well, I think it's yeah. different. I think season three has a it, it, that concludes his Aang arc, you know, with season two. But I think book three it deals with his. Uh, maybe his relationship with his his siblings to some degree, but book three is about how to actually be a leader because he kind of sucks at it, and Janora is way better at him uh, than him at it, pretty much everything spiritual uh, spiritualism, um, leadership, everything. So it's you know that book is in many ways about him learning to be a leader and what that means, and he doesn't. I think in some ways he doesn't learn to be a leader, uh, but by the end of that book we see that. He may not know how to be inspirational or to get the best out of his people, but at the very least, he can show his commitment and to his dedication, and that's what he does in the ultimatum, and that's why I think it's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And um, quick uh, on Long Live the Queen, this is also a great Korra and Asami episode. Uh, One of the the episodes where they kind of get to interact more than any, although they do get to interact a lot in Season 3, and um, this is... uh, more than that, a great Asami episode, and I don't remember if I said it when I said Cora's uh, interesting, but she's not my favorite character. Asami's my favorite character on the show. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I Asami, would say, I would say that I would say that too. My only problem, I like especially season three. I mean, I, I think she's phenomenal, and she's been phenomenal since season one. She's the only one I think who really almost was removed from the romantic subplots. Like she's involved, but not to the same degree. And I don't know, she. I think she was the most interesting character, but at the same time, she also loses a little bit of her intrigue in season four uh, because we get some great season- scenes with her, uh, great moments. Like, if you put all of her moments together, they work. But there's whole, like, three, four episodes at a time where we just, like, don't even see her. You know, so it's kind of seems feels disingenuous to me to say she's my favorite character just because she's not in it enough, I don't think, for it to be legitimate. Like, I think she had the most potential, and I think she was a lot of that was realized, and there was probably more that could have been realized. But see, I think that that's actually part of the reason that she is my favorite character because she's a character who is always going through something and always has drama, and you know, always has some kind of uh, struggle that she's going up against, and it's rarely foregrounded. You know, it's always just kind of something that she has to be handling, but she's the kind of character who will just handle it. And she's able to participate in the, the whatever the larger plot of the season is going on with everything else that's going on in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's especially evident in, in seasons three and four, you know. And I just think that's such a cool way to write a character as someone who, you know, the most dramatic things that are happening in their life aren't, you know, aren't having this radical effect on everything else that they do because they are capable and mat- emotionally capable and mature enough to handle that in a way that doesn't 
you know, interfere with the rest of their life. I just, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, it it is really interesting. It's just, it's hard because it's like, I think I still have a hard time writing. You know, I I often evaluate characters on how interesting they are based on, um, you know, how much could I write about them? I don't know how much I could write about Asami because I would need, like the way I write opinions is that I usually use examples and evidence, right? Like I think that's what makes a good argument. And I couldn't build enough for her to justify it, even though I think that were these all real people in real life, Asami would be the most interesting one. You know what I mean? It's kind of weird. Like, if I could sit down and interview Asami as a character, right, uh, I would probably find her the most, inter- the most interesting out of these these characters, but I just don't think the show gave us quite enough for me to, to give her that spot. But then I don't really know who is the most interesting character in her place, so <laughs> I guess that uh, sort of precludes my argument. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I could probably, I could write plenty about Asami. I probably more about Korra. I think absolutely. Yeah, I think I write more about Korra. Uh, just well, you know, if only because the show is all about has her name yeah. in it, and you know, obviously she's just going to have the most going on. Um, but yeah, I am never not fascinated by by Asami and whatever Asami's doing. And I think, um, I mean, I, we mentioned this a little earlier. Do you, we want to talk about the, the, the quote-unquote the strong female character because there's a lot of Korra-related stuff in, in that discussion. Um, sh- I mean, sure, yeah. Uh, I think that discussion fits in with season four a lot because, I mean, even in season four, I mean, I, I <laughs> this is a, something we've brought up several times now, but I think season four not only features protagonists who are strong female characters – uh, but this time we get a villain also who's a strong female character. So I think, I don't know, I think it fits even better in season four discussion. Yeah, well, let's save it for season four then. For okay. Sure. All right. Well, speaking of, would you like to talk about season four? <laughs> sure. All right. Where do we want to start? Um, um, well, I, I'll tell you this. My You mentioned earlier, um, but my favorite episodes of this season are definitely Coralone is a easy highlight. But I actually think The Last Stand is probably my favorite episode. Um, it's it's kind of hard to say it's not, right? I mean... It's hard not to... And I know, like, Cora alone gets a lot of the props. I really like... Honestly, I think the first episode is great, the second episode is great, and the third episode is very good. So the uh, the Calling, I think, is the third episode. All the three coronation. of those... Oh, the Coronation, right. The right. Calling's uh, four. Yeah, the Calling I didn't like as much. That's about the, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the Airbender kids. Um, yep. But the, the Coronation, yeah. So those three episodes I actually really like uh, quite a bit. Especially... The coronation because it's a lot about Wu, and especially with the in in hindsight, you know that episode is because at the time I was like, well, you know, they've actually made him kind of interesting, and I'm I'm curious to see where they take his character. You were worried, you were like, I think it's cool, but I hope they don't focus on him. And now that we know that they have focused on him, but that it works, going back to see the coronation, I think it's a great episode because there's a lot of you know interesting plot points that happen there. But uh, but Cora alone and uh, a breath of fresh air are both excellent uh, episodes. Uh, Cora alone being obviously the highlight, but I think the last stand and, you know, day of the Colossus is also a great episode. It's just very plot driven. Um, the last stand is plot driven, but so character driven, I think on a way that Cora usually isn't like the series. So I think, I think the last stand for me is really what sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough call. It's one of those things. I mean, like we talked about with beginnings, like, or like I talked about at the beginning of this episode, it's, it's hard to, talk about favorites with this series and just and not have to qualify it with but you know beginnings and Korra alone are there so it's you know oh you know um, what you know what alright scratch both of those I actually think Kuvera's Gambit's the best episode 
I can't believe I didn't. Hmm. I can't believe I didn't say this before. Remember, I, I, I said in that podcast, this was a 10 out of 10 perfect episode for me. And I think that I liked it more than Cora Alone because Cora Alone is great. It's like it's a lot like Zuko Alone in that it's very character driven, of course, you know, and they're very similar episodes. But it's not. And that's fine. It's, a, it's, it's not it's not a knock against it in the scope of the season because you need those kinds of episodes, I think. I think those those are really helpful in fleshing out the characters. But I think. Korra alone is not balanced the way Kuvira's Gambit is. I mean, Kuvira's Gambit has all of the things that you look for in a really phenomenal episode. Um, and then also, you know, changes your expectations of what a great episode of Avatar looks like. Like I said before, there's no bending in that episode. No overt bending. I mean, there's Kuvira controlling the Colossus. But this, Kuvira's Gambit is just paced perfectly. The story's great. Uh, it ends on just the right note. Uh, it doesn't give us a resolution. It's a lot like um, the ultimatum in that way, where we see Kuvira blow up the building and we don't get a resolution on whether or not anybody survived. They did all survive, just like Tenzin survived in the ultimatum. But on its own, Kuvira's Gambit, I think, takes the cake for me. Um, followed closely by probably Coralone in The Last Stand, probably tied for the next spot. I, yeah, I, I would put Korra alone on top. Uh, Kuvira's Gambit is a fantastic episode. I think everything after, uh, you know, including and after Operation Bayfong is just, you know, cross the board 10 out of 10. Um, but Korra alone is like 11 out of 10. It's just... You really, you really like it. Yeah, it's just... It's so... I mean, I could go back and watch that episode just any time. And it's so powerful and so emotionally affecting. I think Core Alone works because you can watch it on its own, kind of like the Blind Bandit where you can see it on its own and that ha- that has it it has that to it its its advantage uh, whereas you might watch Kavira's Gambit and it feels like it's in the middle of the finale. Um so that might be part because it, it's very plot driven so you want to see what happens next. But I think the ultimatum is the same way. Um and I think that they're both like just expertly on uh, episodes on my end. Yeah, and actually, yeah, yeah, both episodes were directed by Colin Hack and written by Joshua Hamilton. As was the episode 11 of season two, uh, Night of a Thousand Stars, which I said was my favorite episode of that season. Oh, well, well there you go. So I guess uh, that combination leads to how about that? really excellent, uh, excellent writing. It's amazing how certain things are... I always thought the, uh, the big problem with this uh, series with Korra was that you know the first and this is one of my problems with the first season is that it's only written uh, and uh, directed by the same people right and so the writers were all uh, Michael DiMartino and uh, uh, Brian Konitsko and the uh, episodes were directed by Joaquin DeSantos and Kiyun uh, Ru and for me um, that was is too uh, homogenized, right? So we didn't get a whole bunch of different perspectives on the characters and the way they were being directed and, and things like that. And that changed uh, into season two and season three and season four, where we got a lot more diversity. Um, but we lost the head writers. Uh, we lost Aaron Ahaz, and, um, who I believe was the head writer on the show. And then uh, Elizabeth Welch Ahaz, who was his, I think, I believe is his wife. Uh, and they were just phenomenal. They wrote a lot of really excellent um episodes of that of that series uh, and i think their direction was just very helpful and uh, the other thing we lost is a lot of the the directors um but one of them of course that i i love is Giancarlo volpe who i've talked about before um who's who's just done a lot of really great work since he just wasn't able to work on 
uh, Korra. So I think, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to who writes and directs these episodes, and people don't really pay attention because it's an animated show. But I think that it's actually pretty huge who's behind the ca- you know behind the camera, so to speak. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. I think that's interesting to kind of um, look back at those pairs and uh, or even just I, you know obviously individual writers are uh, maybe gonna stick out. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's interesting to see kind of the writer director pairs as they come up and. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, what were we say? Season well, four yeah, highlights. <laughs> oh yeah, Cora, Cora alone, amazing. Right, amazing. Of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> one one of the things I really like about this season, uh, the Phantom Cora idea, Cora's evolution. Oh yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we didn't really get a resolution to that, except for that it's really about like we never got an overt resolution to it. We got, we got a thematic we, resolution. We got a thematic re- resolution, which I prefer because, like yeah. I said, you were fine with this. I was not. When <laughs> Toph takes the, or when Toph helps Cora take out the metal from her body, um, I was like, I really hope that's not the ending, you know, the end of that. And you're like, it's the end of the first act. Of course, that's the end of that, you know, whatever. Um, I was really hoping that wasn't the case because that was too, like, okay, so it was just the poison. And it turns out that wasn't the case. So that's why I was so happy with that fight with Kuvira and Cora, not on a necessarily on a choreographed level, but on a, although I still think thematically it was relevant. The, the fact that she keeps trying the same thing and failing, I think that's exactly what that fight is supposed to be about. Um, totally different than her final fight with Kuvira. I think the animators didn't suddenly come up with new ideas or the director or whatever. I think that was intentional. Um, but also the fact that the fight ends with Korra seeing Phantom Korra again, I think that was absolutely um, uh, an excellent choice from a story writing perspective that it wasn't resolved by her taking the medal out. Um, we actually had to see her face her fear when she goes and meets with Zaheer. Now, when that was wrapped up, ostensibly wrapped up when she goes and sees Zaheer, which is a great scene, but again, I think that episode was rushed um, beyond the wilds. You know, you take or, take or leave how they handled that, but I think the, the what's more of a conclusion is the whole last four or five episodes that really wrap up her fear and her, her redressing of her... Um, responsibilities and duties of the avatar and re um recapitu- recapitulating what the avatar does and what what the uh responsibilities are of the avatar like changing the paradigm of what that, that means which we talked about in the last episode yeah the the phantom chorus stuff is is interesting because yeah like like i said like you said i'm, I'm comfortable with there no with there not being any uh you know, literal physical explanation for what the for what Phantom Korra was, even though, like we talked about in those first two, must have been after Korra alone. Like there might, well, there must be some kind of physical explanation because it's physically interacting with her outside of the swamp where it could do that anyway. We can assume. Um, but what I the the what I've come up for just in my head is like uh, this isn't a full explanation, but I feel like there was something spiritual there was a spiritual element to it uh, that was real and not uh, not just in her head. And we know that because the, sp- yeah, the spirit can see it, as we see in, in Korra alone. Um, and if that was resolved by getting the poison out, then, you know, her, that hallucination uh, at the end of the Battle of Zaufu might be a hallucination. It might be actually kind of separate. Yeah, it might but, be a different I, thing. Yeah, the point of that is the point of that is her her brain is something in her is telling her, like, 
you know, as we kind of figure out, as she figures out in the final episode, Kavira is you. Uh, you have a connection you need to understand that you cannot just take her out right now. You need There's something you need to learn. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, well, I, think it's, it's, I think it's that. And also, you know, when we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what Phantom Korra was, you know, what, you know, was it just the mercury metal poisoning? Was it, you know, her psychological trauma? Was it, what was it? Was it fear? Um, I think it, we were trying to figure out what it was and it turns out it's, I think, multiple things. And so it's, it's both. I think that is a separate issue where she got rid of one aspect, but not another of what, you know, what the underlying problem was. And also, she now has a way to manifest it visually, which is in this Phantom Korra idea, because she had an actual Phantom Korra thing that was interfering with her ability to uh, move forward. You know, it's interesting, because that character, you know, we never really, I think it's worth thinking about, and I still don't have an answer for it. Phantom Korra wasn't necessarily evil or, or good or anything, but, you know, and even in that moment, I don't think the nature of the Phantom Korra, quote-unquote, changed when Kuvira turns into Phantom Korra. Because, again, that's Phantom Korra guiding uh, Korra. And that's what we also get in the swamp. She's guiding Korra. And I think that's similar. Uh, but it's not its not clear if it's, you know, good or bad or, or what it is. It's sort of just like a... Sort of like, I would call it, you know, like writer's block. Writer's block's not good or bad. Um, but sometimes it can lead to even better ideas than you might have had initially. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like I think this neutral ab- entity. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and it's interesting. Uh, it is interesting that we put so much focus on kind of the literal explanation. Yeah. It turns out it was there was no literal explanation. It didn't matter at all, uh, which is cool. I, re- I much prefer that. In well, I wouldn't say it didn't matter, but it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't literal. You're right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's season four. Uh, as I said, I think I said, and the best, the best podcast. fight scenes. I think you liked in this in this season more than any other. Yes. Yep. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> I really raved about that one in Operation Beifong, and then they just topped it all in the Last Stand. So right. I felt like I couldn't uh, say that in our podcast because I had already made the claim, and I had you know <laughs> put my foot down about Operation Beifong. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's. The last stand fights really good. The fight with Kuvira and Korra in the uh, in in the cockpit, excellent. Yeah, probably the probably the best the best fight, maybe the best fight in the show. I have to rewatch it again because it's just so fast. It's like it, it, I mean, yeah, fast. it's it's excellent. It, it the best element of that Operation Beifong fight is just like the circumstances are changing every second, and both fighters are, you know, d- are doing that. It's not like you know the the ground is shifting under their feet and they're having to adapt. They are. Oh right, yeah, you're talking about on the, the gun. I thought you were talking fight, about. You know. I thought you were talking about in the cockpit of um, the Colossus. Oh no, well, and it, well, in the cockpit of the Colossus, that it does that as well. Like the fastest fight, I think, in Korra, in the franchise, it just goes. It's absurd. Um, yeah, exactly. Their speed is just, and part of it is they had no. I think part of it was the creators actually had less time than they wanted, so they couldn't draw it out. But I think it added actually added to the fight that they were able to speed it up. Yeah, I don't think it should have been drawn out. I think it benefits from. No, that it absolutely of does. I agree, and then maybe that wasn't their intent. I don't want to presume, but it, what's funny is that it cut time. You know, and I know <laughs> that like this season, they've said they got a minute shaved off of every episode uh, before they got that whole episode scrapped, uh, and then it became remembrances. They. Uh, they were told they had to cut a, a minute off of every episode for, I guess, for commercials or something. So instead of twenty three, huh. 
It's for because 20. Yeah, it is funny. <laughs> um, but for instead of 23 minute episodes, we got 22. So that was yeah. actually a whole minute shaved off. So maybe that was part of what they uh, they wanted to do there. But regardless, I think it, it worked in their favor in this case. Um, we got this phenomenal uh, fight scene. So so you've rega- you know I just want to say this. You're talking about best fight scenes of the year. Uh, granted, I haven't seen a lot of shows with great fight scenes. Um, Agents of Shield occasionally has its moments, not often, um, but not a lot of television shows tend to be very good at it, even when they're high budget, as we've talked about with Game of Thrones. Uh, I don't think those fights are usually very well done. Um, but uh, IGN did a list of the top. I don't know if you saw this. The top fight scenes of the year. In television, you should look up the list. It. It's absurd because Cora should be <laughs> everywhere, and there's one fight, and I th- think it's the Tenzin Zaheer fight. No, no, no. Well, it's Cora. It's the Cora win like, fight. Cora won like all their TV awards. So maybe they were trying to like hold back a little. Well, that was a- that was after the fact though. That that list came out a while ago. Came out oh, in, like December. Oh, hmm. Yeah, no, and and so and the one that won was the Cora Zaheer fight, which a lot of people love that finale. It's, it's fine. A great fight. It's fine. It's a good, it's a good fight. I, I don't like it nearly as much as Zaheer, the Zaheer Tenzin fight or the yeah, entire fight of the, the ultimatum. That was so cool. Um, you have, uh, yeah, you have Mingwa yeah. go over the ledge, come back with like the uh, the tentacles. You have Gazan doing his crazy lava bending stuff, um, and you have Zaheer and uh, Tenzin fighting for the first and last time. And like that, to me, that's just easily an easy highlight uh, of that. Whereas, you know, Korra breaking rocks and throwing them at people is cool, but not nearly as cool as even Korra. Even, it's not even Korra's best. Um, so, yeah, definitely. And and then we get these great fight scenes with Suyin and other characters in this, uh, in this, the end of this uh, book. So, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I think the choreography, just every time they could one-up themselves, they did. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, and that, more than anything, makes me sad that there's no more Korra. I mean, it makes me sad because I that like Korra. More than <laughs> well, I mean, it's it really generally, it's just where I want to see how they would top themselves. Right. Of because course. they have. Right. You know, con- pretty consistently they have. And, you know, they went out uh, on quite quite the peak. But I really, mostly, I mean, I'm really, whatever they do next, whatever uh, those two guys do next, I will be first in line because I just, I cannot wait to see where they go with their career. Absolutely. And, you know, the other people I'm following, the other group I'm following is I'm absolutely following them um, because I think, you know, at the very least they're socially conscious and, you know, you can at least support that. Uh, yeah. It's like Keanu Reeves, like, you know, you may or may not like his acting, <laughs> a lot of people don't, but he's such a nice guy, it's really hard to dislike him, so I'll watch it, <laughs> you know, I don't feel bad seeing his movie, like, I didn't, I didn't love John Wick, as as you know, and I know you really liked it, but I didn't, oh, I, didn't I wasn't, see a, it. you didn't see it? No, I just know that a lot of other people like it. Oh, okay, sorry, I thought you had seen it, okay, well, anyway, I, I didn't love the movie, but I, I was more than happy to go see it because I just I want to see sure, Keanu no, Reeves. No, I love you know? Keanu Reeves. He's a cool guy. Yeah. And by the same token, I want to see. But these, but these, I think these creators have a lot going for them. But part of it is also this socially conscious angle. But the other group I want, I'm interested in is Studio Mirror because they have. I think they were just signed with DreamWorks Television to do three, four new series. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Hey. Exactly. Which is <laughs> really exciting. So I'm really I'm excited to see uh, wherever whatever happens to them because they're just oh, wow. the best. Um, I, I hope I'm getting that right. I believe it's DreamWorks, uh, which is I know a huge, DreamWorks is doing huge TV, deal aren't they? Right, I know they do a lot of TV. Oh yeah, they do I, a lot of I TV. They're it, yeah. partnered with Nick, 
So I think they. Ah, like, so there you go. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Um, and I only know they're partnered with Nick because we see uh, the How to Train Your Dragon series, the Kung Fu Panda. That's all on Nick. So I'm assuming that's the partnership. Um, you know, I'm, whose work I'm excited to see next is uh, Jeremy Zuckerman. Oh um, yeah, because, yeah. Um, well, first of all, it is a it is a he completely know, outdid himself in this. It is a crime against series. humanity that I can't buy the music from seasons two, three, and four. That is atrocious. I I I am you know filled with with righteous anger <laughs> at the fact that those albums have not been released because I listened to the you know the score from season one and it's fantastic but I watched those the rest of the series of these episodes and the music you're right it keeps getting better and again you know I hate to you know be the guy who's just constantly constantly comparing television to movies but I watch more movies than I do television and the score the the general uh, film score kind of the average I guess uh, <laughs> that you hear when you when you go to movies, I would say on maybe on the same kind of scale that Cora is for television and animation, notwithstanding. But uh, my point is that so many scores are just so boring. They really are. Like they're so they really boring. Are. And you get you know you get your your uh, your your Gone Girl scores, you get your Under the Skin scores, and you know even with stuff like I think the Godzilla score is a lot of fun. Very very. Uh, loud and orchestral and, and you know and, and I, I actually didn't hate the score for I, I haven't seen the movie yet but I've listened to the score for Theory of Everything it's not um, yeah it's fine it's not it's not uh, experimental you know I think you can't compare it to Under the Skin score like they're totally different um, <laughs> but I mean it's not even uh, comparable but um, uh, Johan Johansson who did the, the score for that and, <laughs> I can't uh, believe that's his name it's great you know, you know what this is totally a tangent but I was going to mention it anyway one of the best trailers I've ever seen in my entire life was the trailer for Battle Los Angeles. It's an amazing, oh, yeah, that was a trailer. amazing trailer. That song, that weird electronic song, Johan Johansson. Really? Yeah. And so when I oh. saw he did the trailer, the, the score for that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to check it out. And I remember loving the trailer for Theory of Everything, the, the first trailer, uh, not the second one. The second one's not paced nearly as well. Um, and this music was so great. And so I listened to it and it's really enjoyable. It's really, it's like a good, it's good work music. Like while you're doing science, actually, um, when I'm in the lab, <laughs> when I'm in the lab, I like listening to it. Um, but, uh, but it's not even, even then, and that was just nominated for an Oscar. Meanwhile, Jeremy Zuckerman is just, you know, with the track team, they're just doing their own you thing. You can't here. even buy it. And you can't even buy it, you know, let alone, you know, getting nominations, you know, all the Emmys. You see him on Twitter retweeting people all the time who are asking him if they can buy the music, and I can just see him, like, I I feel like those are passive-aggressive retweets that he's hoping Nick will see. No kidding. People will buy this. I mean, how hard would it be to just release it on iTunes? I don't get it. Right? Like, I don't... I'm sure he'd. I'm sure he'd jump at the chance. I. I bet you he has already got like a whole everything sorted into MP3s and within like a track list, and he's just waiting, waiting for waiting someone for the to call. Say go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I am ready when you are. I will upload it to iTunes tonight. But I mean, how amazing is his? I mean, like it's so good. Cora. Cora works on so many levels narratively and and things like that, and the whole franchise does. But really, without the aesthetic that. Um, that Studio Mirror brought to Korra. And this is something I, I wanted to mention because I didn't know this, and maybe this is just a failing on my part as an Avatar fan. Uh, but Studio Mirror didn't do uh, season, uh, didn't do The Last Airbender, right? So we had... Um, no. It was two other studios. Yeah. Uh, that I think it was three, actually. I think another three. one joined in season three. Right, right. And so we got some... And I think the animation got progressively better. But the, the director of 
the the animation director, the guy who's like in charge of making sure the style matches, and the guy who's like shaping the direction and style of what the series is supposed to look like, uh, and making sure the studios cohere, etc. Started Studio Mir, and then of course they hired that studio to handle Korra, and with him really in charge of everything, not just managing three different disparate studios, really from the ground up handling uh, all of the animation. It really. Well, with his team, obviously, uh, Cora was just gorgeous. So without that aesthetic and without the um, the soundtrack, I mean, the show drops significantly in terms of its. You know, it would be much harder to watch, and so I think that it just deserves a, a lot more recognition on on those ends. So I'm very excited to see where those people go. I'd love if they just all stayed together and made more things, but you know that probably won't happen. Um, yeah, if only, right? Yeah, if only. Um, so the last thing I want to do just before we, we close off, uh, I, I, this could lead to a debate. We'll see what happens, but, um, I want to just figure out what your favorite seasons were in order and also your favorite villains, which may or may not correspond. Oh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the women in season four. Oh yeah. We were supposed to talk about women in season four. Okay. Why don't we start with that? Yeah. Okay. Um, I got this, uh, Got this whole thing. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Clearly, and, uh, no, yeah, the, just the whole notion of uh, I've been wanting to write about this, but I don't think I'm the person who probably should write about this. But this is just what I I want to say about the whole notion of the strong female character, and that phrase just at this point, it's you know, when recording it feels January, mid January 2015, uh, I am so sick of that term, strong female character. Because people don't get it. People just don't understand it. You People will write a woman who can beat people up, and they'll be like, yeah, she's a strong female character. She, But she's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like they'll yeah, still yeah. write her with all these other – every other problem that – every other mistake that people will make when, when they're writing a woman and putting her in, in their narrative. And But she'll be physically strong. I really like – it's – that misunderstanding kills me. You... People will see strong female characters and they're like, oh, she's physically strong. So she's a strong so female character. I yeah. nailed it. Yeah. Have, like, you, it's just... have you read uh, that article on Trinity Syndrome? Yeah, I was, about, I was about to bring that up. Tasha Robinson at, at The Dissolve. Fantastic yeah, article on, totally. it's on a great Trinity article. Syndrome, which refers to well, Trinity from The Matrix. The one thing I want to um, say about that article before we move forward is I think it's a yeah. good article. Like, conceptually, I love the idea. I dislike the fact that she brings up the. Um, Oh, I don't remember the character's name, but the the female character from Lego Movie, a oh, Wild Style. Yeah, Wild Style. Only because she literally is Trinity. The movie is The Matrix, and <laughs> she is Trinity. So to like bring her up as an example is redundant because she's Trinity. Because it's The Matrix. It's the same film. So it. I don't know. So I was just. It, it, it's not like a problem with the like the the underlying thesis is completely sound. I just there. Are, I think there are other examples that exist in the world and Lego Movie. Just because it's it was recent when she wrote it, so that was why she included it. But it, I, just, I remember it was like. I think the what kicked it off, and I could be thinking of maybe another article, but um, on the dissolve. But I remember like the directors of the Lego Movie had recently, when they were talking about the sequel, they said, and there's a direct quote that it would have more female stuff in it, mm-hmm. and she kind of took issue with that, and that's that was kind of the kickoff for the article because it's this this that notion of the of the Trinity syndrome of the strong female character is based around uh, this uh, you know when you when you talk about it like in those terms. Mm-hmm. Fem- when you're, oh, we're including some female stuff in this movie. Right, right, right. Sure. And that's how you get characters with uh, the the Trinity syndrome. 
Right, well, and, and if that's the, how you approach it. Well, the other thing about about Trinity syndrome, and it, I think extends to the broader problem, is that you have the idea that um, uh, a character, and I, I saw there was there was a couple. I've seen a couple of people write about this around the internet. The idea that a female character is a strong female character when they take on masculine, stereotypically yeah, masculine. Yeah, that too. Well, that bothers that's me so the big, much. That's the big problem. So people. Uh, and one of the things that people have really rallied behind in Game of Thrones is um, Sansa Stark, because she is someone who I, now I really dislike her character. This isn't a social <laughs> perspective. I find her like uh, very grating uh, up through I think season the end of season four and actually all of season four she became much more interesting to me. But the first three seasons she didn't really do it for me. But um, but what I will say is that. That's my perspective from a social critique perspective. I think she absolutely is a great representation of a strong female character uh, who is still maintains whenever you know she's very feminine. You know, what I mean, she's not Arya. You know, Arya is has a, is very tomboy like. You know, that's the her general uh, character. But I think they're both very you know strong in the in the character sense of the word and. Um, Sansa is interesting because she does it not through brute force or strength or anything, but through, you know, resilience and emotional fortitude and and things like that. The example that I would bring up from Game of Thrones is actually Cersei, who is oh, um, it's another good example. Although she's know, Cersei, she's kind of I, but she well, yeah, I, I I guess I don't know. She sort of she sort of fits in the category of like manipulative. Um, She's a Lady Macbeth in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I think Lady what's Macbeth, interesting yeah, about her is that, <laughs> is that Macbeth in season one spoilers, and she continues to kind of be uh, conniving and manipulative. But what's interesting about her is that uh, she is evil. I think we can agree Cersei's evil, uh, but that does not invalidate uh, the genuine love that she has for her children and the kind of the way that she is, treats her children is mm. not even... And this is something that actually my mom brought up about her and that my mom, I remember bringing up about uh, Narcissa Malfoy, I think it was Narcissa in Harry Potter, who was this woman who, you know, she could be evil and she, and, you know, comma, and she could also love her son and care about her son. Mm. And those two things didn't cancel each other out. She wasn't redeemed by her love, or she wasn't redeemed by being a mother, uh, or if she was even redeemed at all. But, I, you know, remember, you've, at the moment I'm talking about is in uh, book seven, when she is supposed to go check if Harry is dead, and she lets him go because he tells her that Draco is alive and he's in the castle. Right. Um, which is such a great moment, because it shows that, you know, like we've been talking about with Cora, there is... There is goodness in in evil people, even if they Absolutely. do such atrocious things, and I think that's fascinating about Cersei as well. Although she is a little, <laughs> she is a, a little less redeemable, I think, than than Narcissa. Mm-hmm. I, I like that we've completely turned this into a Game of Thrones discussion. <laughs> we're leading up. We're getting there. <laughs> we're leading. Um, but no, absolutely. But I think that these are all examples in pop culture of this 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 phenomenon, and we don't get that in Korra. Uh, I don't think any character really, maybe at best. But no, they fix it in season three. Season one, maybe Lynn. She's a little bit of a little bit of that Trinity stuff because she's a she like I don't know. She yeah. sort of takes agency and does her own thing, and she's like you know she's the badass character, but she doesn't. There's no familial tie. There's no there's nothing else to balance it out. 
we get that finally in season I, The three. reason I think she doesn't fall into that, though, is because she's not supporting the main character. You know, it's her whole thing, especially in kind of the after uh, and the winner is, she, she's like, all right, I'm going to quit my job. I'm doing things outside the law because I cannot deal with anyone else's influence right. on my work. I'm going to get this done. And it's not, you know, for the Avatar's benefit. And it's not for any male character's benefit, which is really the more, more important thing. Um, it's just because she knows what has to be done. That's and true. She's going yeah, you're to right. get it done. You're right. And she becomes much, you're right, she becomes much more interesting as time goes on. Right, exactly. And even though she takes less of a central role, which is also kind of an interesting phenomenon, she becomes less central, but also more, it takes more agency, does more, uh, does more things. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. So, uh, so in this, this final season, we have Kuvira, right? And, uh, and we have Korra really coming to her own, and we have Asami. Um, so what, what's your perspective on, on season four? Well, and I guess season three, you know, too, sort of. I th- and, and I honestly, I think the whole series is the reason that the the women on The Legend of Korra are so... This is exactly like when you talk about the quote-unquote strong female character, You, this is the show to look at because these are characters... They, they, you know, they hit off every <laughs> checkbox, even though I said that that's not how you should approach uh, writing women. You know, Korra is is physically strong and she does beat people up but that does not invalidate the complexity of her personality mm. and kind of her, you know, her pathology is very interesting and she's not defined by her physical strength, even even though really what the show is about is that she does define herself by her physical strength and she has to... Learn not to. Overco- she has to learn not to. She has to learn how to be a whole person and that arc is not, you know, it's not about embracing femininity, which is really... And some people have actually quibbled with that about how she becomes more, you know, less and less physically aggressive uh, as her as her arc progresses. But I think that that's, you know, it, it's not... It's about becoming a much uh, wiser person, a much fuller, more... You I, know, yeah, I totally agree with a that. A better avatar. Definitely. And that's why but I think you, it really works. And Asami... I was going to say, you know, another, you know again, who really fits example. this? The Sansa feminine but also strong role? That's Asami. She's, yeah, absolutely. She's physically and adept. I mean, she beats people up. Actually, more often than you might think, but she's not, you know, she's not ripped. You know, Korra's ripped. You know, she's, I would not get into a fight with, with Korra. I wouldn't get yeah, into exactly. a fight with Asami, and... but Asami seems like she's more, she's not, that's really not her, the focus of her character. Or it's her, it's her intelligence and her, you know, and she's, she's the character who wears makeup. She's the character who's always got the perfect hair. She's the, you know what I mean? Like, it's a very different character than Korra. Yeah, it, well, I, I love that. It's like, all right, yes, she's very, she is, has, she's, she embraces her femininity, and she is, you know, uh, combat capable, and she is a complex person. She is an interesting, well-written character. Like, though, if you can't get to that third point, you're not doing it right, right. and a lot of people stop it, too. And this is, by the way, uh, going back to Avatar The Last Airbender, they've always been good at this. I mean, uh, the one I just, that just popped into my head was Ty Lee. A perfect example, kind of in the Asami mold. Oh, we don't yeah, get totally. as much about her character. We get a little bit like in the beach mm-hmm. uh, episode, but you know, I love that. very similar kind of thing. Yeah, great episode. <laughs> but yeah, no, totally, I, I agree. And I think before we continue, we should c- clarify what the Trinity syndrome is. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So just to, so it's this idea that with the main example, obviously, is Trinity from the Matrix, the first movie, where she starts off the movie being a really interesting badass character. And, uh, you know, she kicks butt and she's, you know, she's the first character we meet. She's the one who introduces us to the 
world of the Matrix, and um, then as the movie progresses, she loses, loses, uh, she loses agency continuously until she eventually just becomes a love interest for Neo. Now, I would argue that there's a meaning behind that because she's the movie is about transferring protagonists. She is the protagonist, I would argue, for the first maybe quarter of the film, and then the film has to really transfer responsibility onto Neo because he's the main character. Um, now it comes at the cost of her agency in some ways. I, I agree with that. Um, but in general, I understand the point. And this is a lot of movies have taken this, uh, same idea where they think that simply making a character who's a woman, you know, beat people up, makes them interesting. Um, I, another show, by the way, I think that does a really good job of balancing characters out is agent Carter. Oh, agent Carter has been so good at this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a moment that I love in the first episode of Adrian Carter is when the um, – I don't know anyone's name yet on that show except for her. Right. But the, yeah, the guy at her work who was the guy who was on Dollhouse who's like the not jerk. Oh, the, uh, the, the guy with the, the – Enver, Enver uh, something? The braces. The guy with the braces. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, if you haven't watched the show, it's this follow-up to Captain America, and she's the you know woman in a male-dominated workplace, and everyone's terrible to her except for this one guy who you know a man uh, coworker makes a disparaging comment, and he immediately steps up and is like, "Hey, you can't talk to her like that" or something, and the guy walks away, and um, she comes up to him and is like, "I saw you make that comment," and he starts to be like, "Oh, you know, it's no problem," and she goes, "I really wish you hadn't." Because I really don't need to be I, – I really don't need them to think that I need you to defend me. Right. I can defend myself. And I was like, oh, that's that's great. <laughs> yes. That's I, you know, exactly I, I love that moment. Down. I did cringe a little bit because not because I, I don't agree with the sentiment but because I was like, well, I know that was somebody's idea in the writing room. You know what I mean? Like it just – it was just very clear. It, it, it feels very communicative. Yeah, exactly. Writer. Like yeah. very – Yeah, I mean it's uh, – the message is spot on. But the message is – yeah, yeah, yeah. Very sympathetic to that. Um and I think it does, does need to be spelled out because the world, as it stands, does not understand how this whole process works. Like, if she just said, don't do that for me, you know, there's a large percentage of the audience that would be like, oh, she kind of sucks, you know? <laughs> Why would yeah, you they do would that? see, well, yeah. You, they she wouldn't would get it. So, like, standoffish. Exactly, and, exactly. Um, you know, it's entry the B, level. The B word would be thrown fantasy. around, and that's, you know, that's pretty much exactly how it works now, so you do need to spell things out. But, yes, entry level, exactly. It's... Um, Gender Dynamics 101. Um, so, or really 100, actually. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, and sorry, we keep getting distracted, but I, I think that's another good example, and that's a modern show, and not surprisingly, uh, headlined by two women uh, created that show. Uh, so, or they're the showrunners on that. Um, and it's interesting about Korra and just, you know, Avatar in general, that it's, you know, it's two dudes, you know the we, the the martial arts consultants a dude the um the main music person is a dude the show creators are dudes and the uh you know studio mirror is run by a dude it's all dudes and yet i don't know the writing is very solid and i actually don't see any female writers on um Katie Matilla joins oh, starts yes. in season 3 right uh she has one episode in season 3 and she writes a few in season 4 Right, but, uh, but, but yeah, for the most no part, we don't, then. and that's unusual, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, the Joss Whedons of the world are far and few between, as I say. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, I thought it was, it's just, it's really well done. I think Asami is a is probably the best example of a female character in this show. Uh, I think Su Yin is probably up there. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, we get, the, even in the beginning, we get the, 
she's both physically intimidating, but she's also absolutely a mother and a matriarch. And, you know, but she takes agency 100% of the time at the expense of her husband and her son and everyone else, you know, there's no male character has any say basically in what she does with her life. Um, but while she kicks butt, she also has this, uh, um, she, you know, when we're introduced to her, she's in the dance company. So there's this crazy dynamic, you know, immediately we see these, these opposite sort of perspectives on her character. Yeah. And what I think is, this is something that I tried to articulate back when you made this point about season four. I don't remember. I think it was like the Battle of Zaofu. Something then. like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I was trying to articulate this and I couldn't quite figure it out. But I think what it ultimately was is that what I was trying to say is that uh, even though I said like, all right, I, yes, the show has been very good at this in the past. What I was thinking of and couldn't really say was uh, the show has done this and it's not about the women the focus isn't the women getting one over on the men, which I really appreciate because that shouldn't, you know, I, I, it's not that that shouldn't be of the focus and something that happens. Obviously that's what agent Carter is kind of all about because that's something well, that's that, sort of, that's implicit in that. And agent Carter could be handling it a lot worse, but even in that, if it's about getting one over on the men, then the focus is still on the men. That's my point. That's exactly right. Yeah. The focus is on look with this, you know, you know, and that's why I like the fact that Kuvir is the villain in this season because there's no getting one over there because Kuvira is the villain. So there's, there's no men to get over on Batar Jr. Maybe, <laughs> but you know, he's not really an obstacle. He's kind of just an idiot. Um, not in the intelligence, obviously, but you know, he's just, he's not, <laughs> he's not a very imposing threat to the rest of the, um, yeah. The, the crew. And, but, well, a really good point I heard of made about agent Carter is like, um, a little bit, I, I think this was critical of, and I, uh, I haven't watched the most recent episode, but the point they made was like, um, if we keep showing that women can be strong and powerful by showing them, uh, you know, showing up dopey men, then all we're really saying is that that's, you know, the bar that women are clearing. Like, we're setting a really low bar. Low bar, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, look at all these dumb guys that she's that she's besting in the work. Like, well, like, what are you really saying with that? Exactly. You know exactly. what I mean? What, what's the message you're really sending? And that's, and, you know, while I like the Agent Carter short, I don't think it's nearly as nuanced as the show of course it's a short but you know yeah by yeah by necessity i think um but anyway so uh yeah agent carter is a good show you guys should watch it um so in conclusion in conclusion <laughs> core is a great show as well um yeah no absolutely uh so just in, in conclusion i do i want to just talk about you know how i'd rank the seasons i just want to throw it out there uh i think season four despite its weird missteps in the middle hits higher highs than any of the other seasons so i would go with season four being my favorite Followed by season three. Um, and really it's a toss-up between seasons one and two. I don't... I would prefer to split it into season one and two, being, making that one season and making seasons three and four one season because then it's very easy, right? Um, yeah. But uh, probably four, three, maybe two, one, just because Beginnings is so great. And a lot of... I like a lot of two. I know you hate it, but I, I think a lot of two is really... <laughs> Uh, solid. I also has my least favorite moment in the entire franchise. Franchise, like all of it, and that includes the Great Divide, which I actually don't hate. Um, and that's the you know the the Ginger Bolin stuff, which I I can't stand. I think it's it's vile um, and un, un, unusual for the show. Not unusual for male writers. I think that is one of the points where they reveal their hand as male writers, where you're like, nah, I don't think this would happen if we had some female writers like 
directing this, uh, directing and writing this, uh, these moments. But uh, yeah, so for me, that's probably how I'd, I'd rank it. I would, okay, so I would probably go season three favorite. And this is, it gets tough. I would, season three favorite, season two least favorite. And. Come on. I would, I would keep them tied. I'll like, I'll, I'll play it safe. Season one and season four tied in the middle only because I was just, I found season four a real slog while I was watching it. And even though it does, I've since found out it works a lot better when you can watch it in a block as, as we were both predicting. Um, I still kind of can't shake that, and I cannot shake just the excitement that I had consistently in season one. So I will, I will say season three, season one, and season four together tied, and then season two. You said season one first, so therefore that's second. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no. Um, all right, that's sort of a cop out, but that's fine. That's cool. I mean, I, I think seasons two and one are for me more closely matched, but I guess we had just a very different. Uh, if we did that thing where you put them together, then obviously three and four are better than two. Oh, obviously, there's no no contest, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, and then in terms of villains, uh, for Zaheer, we'll say Zaheer and the Red Lotus, because I think they sure. kind of go together. Um, I just realized it matches up perfectly. Uh, yeah, I would go to uh, Zaheer number one, I think. Um, actually, hmm. This is tough. Uh, okay, yeah, Z- uh, Zaheer number one, and then I don't want to do the exact same tie in the exact same order, so I will. Ju- okay, fine. Uh, Zaheer, then Amon, then Kuvira, then uh, Unalak. Cool. Yeah, I uh, disagree. So uh, Unalak is last. <laughs> I mean, that's an easy one for me. Kuvira is first, yeah. and I'll tell you why. Kuvira is not only thematically interesting in a lot of ways. You know, there's a. Lot, I think that's the thing about Amon and Unalak. Oh, sorry. Well, Unalak to some degree, not as much, but uh, Amon and Zahir is that they're really thematically interesting characters. I think they're really well written, great characters. But um, Kuvira is both thematically interesting, and she has you know there's parallelism with the character, with the main character. I don't think Amon has any parallels with Korra. I don't think uh, Zahir has any parallels with Korra. I think they there's they challenge Korra. They do a lot of cool things with Korra. I'm not disparaging them uh, in any way, but I think Korra, the whole dichotomy thing between Korra and Kuvira is so interesting, and I'm attracted to it for a lot of reasons, but one of the biggest ones is, I don't know if this is a reason or an explanation, or a comparison, I mean, um, but you know what was so interesting about Zuko was to see his relationship with Aang and how that changed over the course of The Last Airbender. And in this case, we have a similar thing where we have, because there was a lot of reflection of Aang and Zuko and vice versa, this good and bad and the balance and all of that. And we have that same different, the way it balances is different, of course, and the way they reflect each other is different. But we have another dichotomy going on between Korra and Kuvira. And so for me, I think Kuvira takes the cake. And I also was desperate for a really good female villain in the series because I liked Azula so much and Kuvira was just... um, very different, but a, another really great female villain, and we hadn't gotten one yet. So, for all those reasons, I think Kavira takes the cake. After that, the Red Lotus is an easy second. Amon following, uh, and then Unalak last. Um, but I won't say Unalak was a terrible villain, because while his the finale was kind of silly, and his his uh, ideas about conquering the world, or whatever he was trying to do, were kind of dumb. Um, or the Batu, you know, dark avatar idea was whatever. Uh, his His motivation was still, you know, restoring balance spirits or whatever he just took it too far so even with Unalak I think there was there was value in his villainy uh you know what 
based on what you just said, I will make a change. <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah. Well, Aman is first, then Zaheer, then Kuvira, then Uvalok. And so you move Kuvira down after I just did that? <laughs> oh, no. Kuvira, Kuvira stayed in third. Oh, she stayed in third. I swapped Zaheer okay. and Aman. Okay. And I actually, I might, I might move Kuvira up. I mean, I, I just think Zaheer is so cool, but the more I think about it, the kind of the less there is to him. Uh... Well, that's, that's my feeling is like, I think his ideas are really interesting and like the way that plays into the Avatar universe is fascinating. Uh, and perhaps that hits like, if I had to rate each character on like thematic versus character resonance, Zaheer would probably be like a nine or a 10 for thematic, but for character, like a four. Whereas Kavira doesn't quite hit a nine or a 10 for thematic, so maybe like a uh, seven or an eight in terms of her, you know, colony, you know, colonial type ideas. But in terms of character resonance, I think she's all the way up, you know? So, yeah, I think she's... That's why she's, on average, a much better villain for me. Well, the reason I bumped Amon up, and you know what? I think I will probably go... I would go Kavira second place. Uh, the, but the reason I bumped Amon up is uh, what you said about Korra paralleling the villains. I actually disagree. I think there are a lot... Amon has a lot of parallels with Korra uh, that they kind of explore in terms of this, uh, you know, this passionate belief in, in their own righteousness and this uh, like trying to use bending like a, to fix everything <laughs> exactly yeah and using bending to oppress people even you know with the best of intentions um, and being and that kind of guiding them down the wrong path and that they keep kind of harping on that like I said a little earlier they kind of keep returning to that idea of there being you know uh, uh Maybe some some light in the darkness, which they literalize in season two, which right, is fine. Course, yeah. uh, that literally happens, but uh, <laughs> and she has to reach into his chest and pull it out of him, yep. and then destroy him. Of course, <laughs> but I mean, I, we, I don't mind them literalizing it, considering Yin Yang is a I don't mind, yeah, very I don't mind important lot, part of but... the, and that is light in the darkness. Yin Yang is that's what it is. Um, it's all about the balance of of all the things and how there's good and evil and evil and good and and all of that. So. Um, yeah, you're right. Amon does have that more than, even more than Zaheer, but Zaheer, I think, is even more thematically, well, in some ways, more thematically interesting. I don't know. I just, I don't have as fond memories of uh, Amon, but it's also been a while, so I could be just, you know, Zaheer feels more fresh. I do prefer, I think it's, is it Steve Bloom who does Amon? Yeah. I believe it's Steve Bloom. Um, over Henry Rollins. Uh, that's for sure. But. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Henry Rollins got better. But if you go back, it just worked. His... It just worked better when he didn't have a beard anymore. Once he shaved his head and everything, I actually was pretty okay with it. Uh, especially since the character is literally designed after Henry Rollins. If you look at a picture, clearly it was yeah. Um, but when he had the crazy hair and the crazy beard, you expect him to well, sound like Iro or something. Anim- yeah. Just sounds when weird. he stops doing that ridiculous anime voice, uh, the the acting really takes a step up. <laughs> in that in that first scene, I remember where I was talking about this. I know you were so appalled. Ridiculous. I, I was just, I was shocked that that made it through. I was genuinely shocked. I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> what is going on? Uh, but he did, He once he kind of dialed it back, he, he did a much better job. His final appearance in season four is very good. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, even if that crazy rant at the end didn't seem to be in character. But that wasn't his fault. That was just... I mean, like in Beyond the Wilds. Oh, in Beyond the Wilds. Oh, yeah, no, he, you're right. That is his last appearance. Well, I forgot about it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I, I think that's when he really realized what his... It just took him some time to get acclimated, I guess. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that 
I guess that wraps it up. Oh wow! Crazy, right? <laughs> like I can't. It feels weird because it like it hasn't been that long since the series even started, but it feels like it's been a long time. It really does. It feels like we've gone through a full like Last Airbender style, you know, yeah, length. But we haven't. You know, it's uh, in fact it's less length than Avatar: The Last Airbender ultimately because it's only two seasons worth. Yeah, and it's and and over a shorter period of time, even. Right, right, exactly. Uh, you know, it's really just two and a half years that it took to. I, I think maybe part of it is that it took so long between seasons one and two. Right. Um, but then there just, was a sort of rapid fire after that. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, even after that, and also you know, it just you know, personally, in my life, uh, in that time between seasons one and two. You know, I was a I was a senior in high school when season one aired. I was a sophomore at college when season two aired. So, you know, just if I was taking it on that scale, it felt like a long time had passed. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, this is that period of your life where you're. It, yeah, it was one year huge, means a lot more transition. than thirty nine to well, not thirty nine, like thirty eight to thirty nine. You're like, all right, whatever. It's you know, exactly. it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, but that, nine, that, that year in particular, seventeen and eighteen, or nineteen to twenty. I mean, those are huge years. So, um, yeah, this and that, yeah that month between seasons three and four, so much changed in that time, man. Exactly, it was just like a, it was a whirlwind. It was felt like years, and and they know that too. And that's I think that's what's really interesting. Is, well, it felt like years as well because they moved, jumped forward three years in the show. Um, but um, <laughs> but uh, that's cute. But uh, but I think they also know that it, a lot like Toy Story, you know, sort of evolved with the the audience. You know, we all evolved with Andy because we all or grew up with Andy because we were kids when Toy Story came out. And by the time he's going to college, we're all going to college. It was very timely. I think in the same way they know their audience for The Last Airbender was has gotten older, you know. So, um, yep. so they, there was no mistake in making Korra, you know, around 17 to 21 in the course of this series was absolutely intentional. So, um, and she's going through crazy changes, and we're going through crazy changes. And even if you don't have, and that's what's cool about this series is there's the the very uh, broad appeal of m- maturation, which just happens to everybody. Uh, and then there's the individual things, like if you had to deal with PTSD or whatever. A lot of people have really it's resonated with them, uh, or depression, or etc. And I think Cora has really helped those people in those specific situations. And for me, um, it hasn't been as resonant in that area because I've fortunately have not had to deal with those sorts of things, but it's still resonant more broadly as a story of, you know, a coming of age story. Yeah. Well, and as you know, <laughs> you bring up, uh, speaking of depression. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that Cora alone resonated with me so much and why the final scene of season three resonated with me so much because that's stuff that, um, that stuff that I had previously uh, gone through, and I had really just it meant it meant so much that the show was tackling that in a serious way and not in a uh, you know educational way. That it could have a character who went through something like this, and it wasn't about that thing; it was about that character. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's I think that's why a lot of people. It's it's the same thing with the, the Korra and Asami relationship at the end of the show. People are so thrilled that they can do something like that, that they can show something like that. And the fact that it is a, you know, same-sex relationship is not the thing. Like, you can tell that they're not doing this for publicity because obviously no one's watching. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Um, as depressing as that so, is. 
Exactly. Yeah, and it just feels it feels very natural, just beautifully natural, and just you you can tell, and you can you can read, you can go online and read people's reactions and how much that meant to people. Absolutely, I have seen some angry reactions for people saying, you know, like we shouldn't be, you know, applauding this very like pedestrian. No, 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 no. no. But I don't mean they're these are. I think these are people from the LGBT community um, who are upset Hmm. that you know they're like, why are we applauding this? They barely did anything. Problem is context. I have seen that. The problem is context, of course, because like if you look back, you know, uh, Kirk kissing Uhura doesn't seem like a very big deal, right, in Star Trek. But that was the first interracial kiss on TV. Yeah. You know, like that's we were a... both hypnotized at the time in that episode. People don't remember that. Oh well, so I'm sure people were like, oh, they're not even, you know, look at these characters. They're not. This doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't actually mean right. Exactly. There's a lot of, and that was of course a defense that I'm sure the show used to sort of get away with it. But anyway, the point being that. Everything looks small in ret- you know in in retrospect, but at the time it's really it's important. If this hasn't been done before, it is it does matter. And so I know people feel like you know why they could have done more. They could have really embraced this. They could have really you know it's first of all they probably couldn't because Nick wouldn't let them. And second of all, you know as much as it, I understand the desire for even more, and that's good. You should have the desire. Um, I still think it's important to recognize progress when it's made. So. Well, I think the sad. You know, if there is a sad thing about the the Korra and Asami relationship, it's that uh, if you, like we talked about on the last episode, if you read the, what the creator said, uh, they might have been able to go further with it, but their assumption was that they wouldn't be allowed to, so they didn't even ask. And now I think going forward, which is another reason that I'm excited to see what they do next, I think going forward, they're going to have it in their heads that that's not as much of an obstacle or if it is where, with where if it is an obstacle wherever they go next, then they can have this show as kind of ammunition. That's like, look what we did. You know what I mean? Well, what's so great too is that you know I think there's a it's self uh, perpetuating. You know, if you try, there's a great. We're actually going to be starting a Parks and Recreation um, podcast very soon for the last season. Mm. Um, announcement. Ooh, announcement. Um, which doesn't have a title yet, but. Um, please email us. Please email us the title if you have one. Um, but there's a, a great scene in uh, the first episode of the second season where uh, Leslie Nope, the main character, accidentally accidentally marries two penguins who are, penguin, who are yeah. male, um, and then so she becomes like the gay she she gay married penguins, and that was like a big deal in the uh, in the show. And uh, at first she's like, "No, I didn't mean to do that. I want to clarify that I, you know, I'm not trying to make a political stance. I just thought it would be cute to marry penguins, you know, as a publicity thing." Uh, but she gets so swept up in how the gay community responds that she and she's so in love with the idea that other people have been made happy based on something she did, which is not usual for Leslie Nope in the city of Pawnee, um, that <laughs> she she goes with it and she makes it her mission. She it becomes something that was incidental and makes it purposeful. And here it's not that they didn't weren't purposeful about it, but I think the creators have they're seeing the value of making a character of color a main character they're seeing the the response the incredible response they're getting from um the greater community for doing this same-sex relationship and i think that will self-perpetuate they will now that they've done it a little bit they've put their toes in the water they can say well we know that audience is there we know it's important it's not just theoretical this is a real thing i've seen the real messages from real people and now we can continue to try and do that in the future really push boundaries even farther so yeah um push boundaries even further so yeah it's really exciting absolutely that's if you know if nothing else i I can see how people will kind of look at this and and think well it's 
we're not going to remember this in the future because we're going to, you know, whatever the next thing that happens, that's going to be the big one. Uh, because, but, you know, forgetting that the next thing that happens is going to be because of this. You exactly. Know, whether, you know, whether even, whether that's conscious or not on the part of whoever creates that thing, they're going to be allowed to do it because of this. Exactly. This has opened so many well, you know, doors. It's, and this is, it's incumbent upon, uh, you know, us. It's incumbent upon, upon audiences and uh, on journalists to really comment on this uh, and, and remember it historically so that it's not forgotten as, like, you know, this incidental thing. This was intentional. The creator said it was intentional. It's very clearly intentional and, and that, that that has meaning. Uh, it's important to save that and know that if this happens again, in, in, and I trust and I hope and I believe it will, in other ki- even, you know, kids series or animated series, that it's it owes a debt to to Korra. Yeah, can I tell you the weirdest, the weirdest uh, reaction I heard to this? It's actually by someone who does not watch the show, but what they said, and I, I felt so weird because technically they're right, is they basically said, you know, nothing that a, that a creator says after the fact actually has an impact on what the work is. You know, the, you know, I agree the with that. Death of the author. And I, I said, yeah. I, I, I thought, like, oh, yeah, well, I agree, uh, but that doesn't matter in this case. That's a very narrow view of what's at why. This is I mean, I, I brought this up last time. I think when we first talked about it in the last episode, I was talking about JK Rowling. I, bl- I believe, I hope I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, With we, Dumbledore, right. You know, saying Dumbledore is gay is like, well, that's great, but you did nothing in the entire story. Whereas there's evidence here to back that up. You know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I think there's, there are some retcons that, uh, or not retcons, but things she could say now, JK Rowling to really, um, to at least, push the ball you know get the ball rolling a little bit one of them that's really interesting and i don't want to get into this, this is a whole other discussion but uh to say that uh if hermione was black that that's a something that some people have put forward that you know there's nothing that there are drawings of hermione in the book you know that that she did that the artist did consult with jk rowling on but in the text there's all this stuff about her life and her hair and how everyone's obsessed with her hair and it's always you know sort of out of order and everyone's always commenting on it or touching it or whatever. Um, or, you know, the scene where Draco Malfoy calls her a mudblood, you know, there's all this context that get, gains meaning if she's black and there's nothing precluding that. So there's this interesting idea in the, uh, uh, in some of the fan community about that. Now that you could actually build a case for. Um, some people have tried to build a case for the Dumbledore being gay thing. I, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not offensive or it has no, like, there's no problem with it. It's just, it doesn't, it's meaningless to me. Whereas here, we have two people in a relationship at the end of the, the thing, and then the creators intentionally waited time to see what people thought so they could then, um, you know, or to, you know, give give it time to percolate on its own before they came out and said, yes, it was intentional. It's almost like they were waiting so that they would be able to prove people wrong. Like, that, I think the the point they were making has more power because people had been opposing it right, up to course. that point yeah. because there were like two or three days where people were like no this is clearly not what's going on and you people are being ridiculous and then they come out and like no this is what's going on mm-hmm. i think that it has a lot more power and just a lot more weight if than if they had done it immediately and they had you know people hadn't had a chance to object because by le- giving people the chance to object uh they're Letting their statement be kind of a squashing well, of if, those objections, yes, not just but like of course, a hasty. Of course, on the flip side, is you could also see it as that they were waiting to see if they got any positive response. If they didn't, they might have just kept their mouth shut. That's uh, that's very cynical. Very I, I cynical. That wouldn't be true. And I and I trust these creators way more than that. But I'm just I I could yeah. see how somebody from an outside perspective might 
believe that. I could, from an outside perspective, I could see someone making that argument. Yeah, I agree with you. I trust the, I trust them too much to have, uh, to do something like have that. Have such a yeah. dark thought. <laughs> yeah, yikes. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, the JK Rowling thing, fantastic example. It's just, I think there is a, you know, the whole thing with, with Grindelwald, it's like, all right, I get what you were yeah, that was it. Yeah, to yeah. say, but yeah, well, I think really the problem is like you said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference to me. It really, I mean, it does personally, it, it doesn't make a difference to me. But I think, like, I don't feel like Dumbledore being gay, like, would, like, I don't think anybody in the in the Spectrum community. Now, I'm not, I don't want to speak for that community, but I just, I don't know how much it's helping them to know that Dumbledore. It's like, well, that's great, but if you wanted that to be a thing, you should have made it a point. Exactly. The reason that it doesn't matter in that uh, community, and I don't want to speak for them, obviously, but the reason that it's, I don't think it's held up in that community as this like shining moment in LGBT history, is that uh, Dumbledore's sexuality is. Never mentioned in the books, never hinted at it in the books, never has any bearing on the books. It's not a part of the books. It is an afterthought. Whether J.K. Rowling wants to, you know, whatever she wants to say, it's not in her books at all. Right. And, you know, you could say that Dumbledore's gay after the fact, and you can reread those books with that in mind. But it doesn't matter, you know? It, it does, it just, nothing is revealed about the story because when you hear that, except for the Grindelwald thing, which is something that happened like seventy years before the series even starts, right? Exactly. It's just it doesn't it doesn't make it. It would be different, like you know, if she had said like I don't know, uh, oh you know, Ron was gay the whole time. If she had come out and said that, that would be I think maybe a slight. And and if there had been like you know, if there had been some, but, I mean, style exactly. But there's like no, there's absolutely none of that, and I think that's what's so cool about this, uh, and that's why I think the. The thing, the, the Hermione thing, is a good counterexample because if she were black, I think that there's a lot of interesting uh, subtext to a lot of the way the ways people yeah. treat her or whatever. It's not just that she has Muggle parents, but that she's she's black. Yeah, and that's clearly the, like a metaphor for that too. Yeah, exactly. And of course, that's what it's supposed to be. But it, you know, it almost literalizes it. And in fantasy and sci-fi, uh, you know what I would, you know what I find literalize. really interesting about that is the idea that um, the idea that racism is so is such a horrifically powerful force. That um, if Hermione was black, like that's not something that they care about in the wizard community. But the wizard community still finds something to hate people for. Exactly, exactly. Like it's different. not that you're black; it's that you're you're part Muggle. That's the problem. But exactly. it's like, is yeah, that, that really? People, yeah, that's the, what a hor- you know what a what a scary thought that people will just always find something to hate about other people. Exactly, exactly. And that yeah. So anyway, that would have been interesting. But again, here we have very clear. Um, it's not. There is a whole map, uh, roadmap of pieces that you can put together very easily about Asami and Korra, and that is not the case in um, in Harry Potter, I, I would argue. And so I, I understand their argument, and I have seen people who still disagree that there's any evidence whatsoever in the series that supports this at all. I, I find that hard to comprehend, but there you have it. If you're watching the series blindfolded, maybe? <laughs> uh, but no, it's clear. I mean, come on. Watch the series. If you watch the series again... I will say it's a baby step. I will say it's a baby step, but it is a step. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for this has been a great discussion. I've I've loved covering this uh, this franchise. It's absolutely my favorite thing. Um, I find it interesting that all of my favorite franchises are all Asian influenced in some way. At the Avatar universe, um, one of my favorite movies is, uh, speaking of The Matrix, and speaking of Trinity Syndrome, I, The Matrix remains absolutely in my top ten favorite films. I adore that movie. Uh, the very Asian-influenced uh, film. And then uh, Firefly is my favorite television series, uh, live action, and that's also very heavily influenced by sort of uh, by Chinese culture. So uh, 
I find that very odd. So this this fits right in there in my pantheon of phenomenal uh, works, and uh, I'm I'm really happy that uh, that we have what we have, and maybe we'll be able to revisit this again in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Cora is, you know, I I remember starting Cora, and even after I really loved season one, it was just like it was. All, I always thought it was gonna be like one notch below the original. Series. Right, right, sure. And I was comfortable with that because I really liked it. But I like I, I would I would put it up next to the original series at this point. I, I, I feel like it in no way tarnishes the original series. I would maybe put it half a notch below just because I don't have any strong negative opinions about anything in Avatar Last Airbender, and that's probably nostalgia talking, but I have gone back and watched it, and I honestly just feel like... Hey, people talk about things like The Great Divide, and I'm like, I... It's a fun episode, I don't know. I don't have any negative opinion about it. There are some clunker episodes in the beginning of Season 1, I will say. Season 1 has pacing issues, maybe. Like, it's... Like, starting off, it's a little slow, but it's, you know, it's still doing... Like, there's no episode where nothing's happening. Um, and in this case, I don't think that's true of Korra. I, I think that there, every episode something's happening in Korra. Maybe not remembrances. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that's a separate problem. But I think uh, Korra has things that I genuinely dislike. Uh, namely the romance subplots and then the ginger Olin stuff. So like to me, that's, that's really the limit of that. Um, but, you know, with those things in mind, I can't quite put it up there. But for me... And it's absolutely a comparable series, and I'm I'm really glad we got it. Oh my, yeah, it's 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 tough to say goodbye. It really is, but um, I'm glad we got it. Absolutely. One of the things I want to do just before we wrap up, um, we have. It seems that we've attracted something of a, a listenership over the course of uh, this series. <laughs> um, you know, on Reddit, on the Last Airbender subreddit, uh, on the site itself, uh, we've gotten a few. Uh, discuss comments, both good and bad, um, <laughs> and uh, and just on Twitter and, and all sorts of places. So I want to just quickly uh, give a word of thanks to those people who have um, been supportive of our discussions. Uh, it really it, it means a lot. Um, it's I don't know it's it's huge for me and seeing those. I've I've basically screenshotted every positive comment because <laughs> it's it's huge for me. So um, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's huge for me as well. I could never have you know my wildest dreams uh, come true when I see people uh, posting about how happy they are that there's a new episode of this podcast. Is it just the, I don't know, just the idea that people are listening. Cause I, I know that people are listening, you know, irregularly cause there are, I assume hits on, on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea that people, the traffic, listen, traffic is fine, but you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's the nameless it's the people traffic, coming back. You know? Yeah, people coming back, back because they want to hear us talk. There's no higher compliment than that. So, yeah, from the bottom of my heart uh, as well, thank you so much if you've been listening to us, and I hope that you continue to listen to us in our, our other podcast endeavors. Absolutely, and uh, I'll just echo that sentiment. Uh, it means a whole lot uh, to us, and we love doing it, and we're glad you enjoy listening. Absolutely. All right, well, thanks again for joining me, and um, stay tuned if you're listening to this and you enjoy hearing us talk about uh, Korra. We'll be talking about plenty of other series uh, as time goes on. We have a Game of Thrones podcast. If you're still listening to this, uh, when we've right. been going on for a long time, if you're still listening to this, then you are going yeah, to really love our podcast. Yes, so and they're not, not uh, nearly yet. as long as this. This is just a... You know, there's a lot to say, a lot Isn't to say, um, uh, but we have a, a Game of Thrones podcast that we've been doing, uh, we did for season four and we will continue to do for season, um, 
five when it airs, and uh, we're also doing a Parks and Recreation podcast. Uh, we'll probably cover House of Cards and True Detective as we've done in the past. Uh, so we've got a lot, a lot coming down the pipeline. Let us know if you have any uh, other things that you'd you'd like us to to tackle. Uh, but for the time being, thanks, Josh, for joining me. And uh, oh so yeah, much Hannibal, much Hannibal. Right. and I should also do that. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, and, uh,